Welcome back, everybody. My name is Rick Firestone. You're listening to Pixel Project Radio, a video game discussions podcast where we talk all about the games that we love and the games that you love, too. Just real quick, I'll talk about this more at the end of the episode, but if you want to keep in touch with us and keep up with everything we do, you can find us on social medias, on Twitter and Instagram, and find us under Pixel Project Radio. We've got a Discord server. You'll find a link to that in the show notes, and we've got a Patreon page as well. Link to that in the show notes, too. Today, I am joined by a good friend of the show and a good friend in general, host of Tales from the Backlog and one of four co-hosts. Four co-hosts of a top three podcast? Yeah, Is it four? yeah there's four of us, yeah. Yeah, there's four. I can count to four. Uh, <laughs> we've got Dave Jackson here. Hey, man, thank you so much for inviting me to come back on the show. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you, man. I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to this episode because today we are talking about one of my favorite games, uh, maybe of all time, certainly in a top 20, maybe in a top 10, uh, Near Replicant. Mm -hmm. So if you're new to the show, first of all, welcome. Uh, If you're a returner to the show, welcome back. Uh, If you haven't heard us before, what we're going to do is sort of go over the dev history our personal feelings on some of the game, the music, the mechanics, etc., etc. Before we dive into the story, when we get to the story, it's going to be like a book club format, meaning we're not going to spoil the end before we get there. So we'll talk about things as they come up. For this episode today, this is part one of a two-parter, and today we're going to be going up to about the time skip. It is a point in the game. You can't miss it. We're going to be going up to the time skip. All right, I think that's everything. So before we start on the show, sometimes we like to give a little one sentence, two sentence, and it's kind of loose, a little mini review, not quite an elevator pitch, but just our brief thoughts, a TLDR of how we felt about the game. Uh, Dave, I understand you've prepared one. I did prepare one, yeah. So Dave did I his said, homework. That's yeah, incredible. I did. I did my homework. I'm a good student. <laughs> At age 35, I finally become a good student. Um I have a little review here that says Near Replicant uses a fun cast of characters, a clever twist on a common trope, and a meaty portion of manufactured tedium to tell an affecting narrative in a way that only a video game could do. Eight out of ten. Oh, all right. So that and that's your personal, just a personal rating, like where it personally falls for you, or is that you being more objective? Uh I hope that there's some objectivity in there too, but I I do think like my personal experience with it has to factor into my own personal rating a little bit. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Uh, I I think I've said on the show before, I I don't trust any reviewer that's not at least a little bit subjective. Mm -hmm. You just can't do it. Yeah. I like one thing in particular you said in your review, and I'm going to put a pin in it. Uh, I'm also very interested to hear what you felt the manufactured tedium is yeah i i'm we're gonna get there <laughs> it's coming out yeah <laughs> <laughs> mine is pretty quick uh and pretty similar too near is a game focused on a deeply personal and tragic story with a single question at its core when believing strongly in your convictions how far will you go to do what you believe is the right thing uh this to me is an eight and a half out of ten personally i love this i adore this game this mm-hmm. game is i i man it it slapped me so hard when i played it and speaking of that, uh, a little brief history with the game. I played this before Automata, and uh, actually for the first time in 2022. 
So no nostalgia for the old Nier for me. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, same. I, I Frankly, I'd never heard of Nier until I played Automata in like 2019 or so. So I played that one first. Um, I, I am like a little bit jealous of your experience playing this one first because if there is... Like you can play them in either order you want, but I do think this is like a slightly preferable game to play first of these two, you know? So, but I did play Automata first, so um, I missed out on some of the references that are in that game uh, to this game. Things that seem not very noteworthy if you play Automata first, but if you play this one first, you're like, whoa, okay, that's, you know, they're doing it. So... Yeah, but no, um, no, no experience with this. I played Near Replicant, the uh, the the remake, remaster, whatever they're calling it, for the first time in um, 2022, beginning of 2023. And and we'll get into what uh, what our experiences were uh, with this game in particular in regards to some of those things that are revealed in Automata or just a part of Automata, mm-hmm. Automata. I don't know, whichever. <laughs> Uh, but yes, we both. So we both played this new version called version 1.2. Repeating, uh, not going to say all of it, but it is a vastly improved version of the original Near, uh, Near Gestalt in the U.S. and Near Replicant in Japan. And speaking of those, let's talk about them a little bit. Uh, the original games were developed by Kavia, published by Square Enix, directed by Yoko Taro the crazy man himself, mm-hmm. written by Hana Kikuchi <laughs> and Sawako Natori, composed at the helm by Kiichi Okabe, with assistance by Kakuro Ish- Ishihama, Keigo Hoashi, and Takafumi Nishimura. This was released on the PlayStation 3 and 360 back in April of 2010. Were you aware of, were you playing games back in 2010, Dave? Oh yeah, I was playing a ton of games. I had an Xbox 360. I just like didn't play this uh, try to think about what i was playing back then i was probably playing like red dead redemption and fallout new vegas if that had come out yet if not fallout 3 stuff like that so i like literally had never heard of this but i was playing a ton of games at the time that's yeah that's that's cool i i had a ps3 very briefly i think in the summer of 2012 2013 and i remember seeing this game but i never picked it up because uh you know, at the time, I, I only played the stuff that I knew and the stuff that I liked. And I remember thinking that Papa Nier from the Nier Gestalt that the U.S. got, mm-hmm. I remember seeing him on the cover and thinking he looked really stupid. So I just never <laughs> I never bothered picking this up. I still think that that cover looks pretty stupid. Like I looked, I've seen the cover for the, uh, the Nier that we got. And I'm like, yeah, if I saw that at GameStop, I would immediately forget about it. I'm not buying that. <laughs> there, it was... It, it was a decision to make yeah. <laughs> Papa Nier for the U.S. Uh, speaking of that, in the U.S., we got the version that is called Nier Gestalt, and Japan got Nier Replicant. The team at, at uh, Square Enix felt that a Western audience wouldn't appreciate the sibling uh, dynamic quite as much as the father-daughter dynamic. So they kind of retconned it all. Well, they didn't retcon it. They they made Nier, the playable protagonist, an adult as the father in the U.S. version. Besides that, they didn't change a lot. Uh, and that's important because for those of you that have played the original Nier Gestalt or have watched gameplay footage of it, the dialogue is very clearly written for an adolescent, I think. 
Uh, I don't. I I don't think that is uh, controversial to say. Uh, I I really don't like Papa Near. I don't think it works. Yeah, I I haven't seen gameplay footage or let's plays or anything of the original one that we got, but just conceptually, it seems like a real like misunderstanding of you know different groups of people and what different groups of people might like. It seems like they're like, well, there's not a lot of games featuring a brother and sister. So that means they're not going to like a game featuring, you know, a a teenage boy and his sister. So we got to make it a a dad. Uh, And maybe this is the, the, uh, the original dad game. We got a big run of them after the last of us came out a few years later. This is the, the OG dad game. I'm calling it right here. And now we're lousy with dad games. We we can't we we can't keep up with the dad games at this rate. <laughs> Got too many dads. Entirely too many dads. <laughs> Work on it. Square Enix, do better. Come on. <laughs> Work on it, buddy. <laughs> Aside from that, um this new version, version 1.2, it was released uh in 2021, I believe, and it wildly improves on just about everything. Uh the graphics look a little better. The localization has been much improved. The music has been slightly rearranged. And most importantly, the handling, the combat and the movement has been much updated. Uh, After the success of Automata, Mm -hmm. Platinum kind of served as a consultant for this remake, remaster. They don't really call it either. They don't. Right. I I don't know. This is a, (laughs) they missed the other Square Enix trend of putting the word remake in the title of your remake. So who knows what this actually is by definition. <laughs> uh, Tetsuya Nomura, damn you. <laughs> uh, but the the combat in particular has been much improved. It, this plays more or less like Automata after they, they remade it. This was actually originally conceived not as a brand new IP, but more as a third installment to the Drakengard series. Uh, Dragon Guard was Yokotaro, one of Yokotaro's first games. Uh, what happened with the first one was he he worked on it, and Square Enix was kind of pretty hands on with what he could do. And after that, he swore that he was never going to direct another game with them. Uh, so that's why Dragon Guard Two, for those that you know might already know or have looked it up, Yokotaro and his team was not involved with that at all. Hmm. So Square Enix for near. They said, all right, all right, man, you do what you want to do. We're <laughs> going to give you control. And uh, that's that's where he came back in. He was going to make this a part three. But interestingly, it completely ignores uh, Drakengard 2. This picks up after ending E in the original Drakengard game. That's another series I have like, you know, I said I'd never heard of Nier. I definitely had never heard of Drakengard back in the day. I don't know if you did. No, no, I I had never heard of it. It was a pretty, I I don't know if middling success would be the right word, but it wasn't very popular in the West, Drakengard. I mean, even Nier, the original Nier, wasn't a smash hit in the United States. Like, it it did okay, Um, but Yoko Taro and his team wouldn't become a household name until the the abject smash hit of Automata. Mm Mm-hmm. But this uh, this is a follow up to ending E, which is considered kind of like a quote unquote joke ending of Drakengard. I'm not gonna we're not gonna spoil the story for that here, but the short version is that uh, ending E and Drakengard itself kind of 
introduces the origin to where we begin. Uh, there are some unanswered questions to the intro of this game that uh, Drakengard kind of tells us about if you were to go through and play that. Hmm. One thing I read, Dave, that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on is that uh, Yoko Taro wanted to create Nier as being more focused on friendship and less dark than Drakengard. And uh, <laughs> we're not going to talk about the whole game today, but we've both completed the game. Yeah. And uh, what, what do you think about that, Dave? If this game is his idea of less dark, then I, I shudder to think of what's going on in the story of Drakengard. I'll just say that. He's a twisted man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the, the the theme of friendship or like the focus on friendship, I can totally see that because this, you know, the, the bond between the main characters in the story is one of the, the key things. You, you really get a sense that they all care about each other by the end. And um, then it seems like they pulled back on that a little bit or like shifted the focus, I guess I'll say, in um, Automata compared to this one. Yeah, that's one of the big differences that people will cite whenever, you know, the inevitable conversation, which do you like better, comes up, is that the characters in Replicant feel a bit more in focus, and uh, they're sort of the vessel for the story. It's a little different in Automata, but mm-hmm. um, I completely agree. This The story in this is really depressing. It's, it, it is pretty dark, but the friendship motif is it's on full display. It's really good. Mm-hmm. We, we've gone almost 15 minutes without kind of summarizing what this game is. So maybe let's let's touch on that super quickly. You play mm-hmm. as the titular character Nier, Papa or Brother, depending on what version you're playing. And the gist of it is your sister is quite sick and you are trying to cure her sickness. She's got this thing called the Black Scrawl. And after teaming up with a sort of magical book you realize that the way that you could save her is by gathering these sealed verses. It's a sort of MacGuffin. Well, it's it's not a MacGuffin, but that's spoilers. Um, it, it, you think that you can cure her by finding all these sealed verses. That's mm-hmm. kind of the bare bones gist of the game. Anything yeah. anything to add? Is that okay? Uh, just that when you say you team up with a magical book, uh, Rick is not trying to tell you that you find a magical book and use it and read from it and stuff you it floats next to you and talks to you and you talk to it it's one of your party members as you go through the game um but yeah that 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 story even before it started even before the story started to go in all the different uh, directions it goes in i was in for this like beginning story with the sixth sister and trying to go find the cure um i thought it was pretty nice setup yeah, yeah, this, oh man, this game's got such a good hook, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll get to that in just a second. This this game is celebrated, and Yoko Taro in general is celebrated for his storytelling. Um, he's he's done a lot of talks about how he thinks about storytelling. For this game in particular, he kind of worked backwards. Uh, he thought of the ending, the conclusion, and then he worked backwards to kind of put in the uh, points of emotion. And And by the way, when when Dave and I talk about Yoko Taro being, you know, this creator, this auteur, we're not implying that he didn't have help. <laughs> I mean, he obviously yeah. has a big team helping mm-hmm. him out here and doing the writing, doing the graphic design. Uh, but a big part of Nier is, you know, it, it it's all Yoko Taro's vision. He had to sign off on everything. That was mm-hmm. kind of the whole point of of uh, coming back after Drakengard. Yeah, this the the Nier series has like 
I don't, I don't want to say, I mean, it's weird. So if I say it's weird, I'm not, it's not derogatory, but it has a bunch of weird edges on it that it's made by a person who has lots of strange and cool outside the box ideas. And since, since like you said, this is that one person's vision, those edges are not sanded off by other parts of the team or, you know, corporate structures saying like, no, you can't do that. People aren't going to like that. Um, you know, Square Enix, obviously not a perfect corporation or company as we know, but it's, uh, it's something that I mainly appreciate about indie games as I play, you know, more, more and more indie games every year, but also, you know, auteurs, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, auteurism and whether we should celebrate people like that. Um, other Japanese auteurs that I won't mention by name right now, but, um, the, the cool part of that is if they have a cool idea and it serves the story and they manage to pull it off, then you do get all these super creative things that you wouldn't get from other AAA video game products. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And, and I think, I'm guessing that's part of, that was part of Yoko Taro's frustration with Guard 1. Yeah. Um, I haven't, like you, I haven't played it. Um, I just kind of know a brief summary, but... It, it kind of does, this does kind of feel a bit like an indie game with the backing of a big company, like yeah. Square Enix. Yeah. And that's very cool. Uh, and one of the reasons this kind of feels like an indie game is because they they take risks in different areas of the game. One of them is sort of the, the thematic material. So, Dave, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think are sort of this game's core thematic ideas or thematic identity. I, I have written down what I think, and you yeah. can obviously see my notes. <laughs> so I'm going to steal them and... <laughs> repurpose them as my own yeah. <laughs> yeah you do the classic thing of going first doing my act and then yep. leaving me in the lurch exactly now um i i like that you have your um kind of story themes because my kind of theming that i took away from it is how yoko taro wanted to introduce the theme of like frustration into the game and i do think that this is intentional that parts of this game the act of playing this game to me was very frustrating at times and i think that that was intentionally designed that way to serve the story so and the characters comment on it too so i know it's not just me like the characters say like hey why are we doing this right now uh so there there's an intentionality like i said manufactured tedium earlier and i think that he's really playing with that in this game to serve a point in the story. And I won't talk about what that point is until we get way later in maybe even in part two of this, uh, this series here. But I do think that that's intentional. And that's a theme that I think he was really heavily exploring. Uh, you know, the act of playing this game doesn't need to be fun all the time. And if it's not fun, can it have a purpose? And I think I know what you're referring to or at least I think I do, and part of what makes this game tedious to play. So we'll put a pin in that because yeah. that's coming up pretty soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Something that jumps out to me with this game is just this idea of perspective, and that's uh, 
largely because Yoko Taro was really inspired by the attacks of September 11th on the United States. Um, his, his perspective on it was a little different being a Japanese citizen. You know, he obviously was very against what the, what the U.S. was doing in response to it. But he was quoted as saying, So for Nier, I was deeply influenced by the events of 9-11 and the world thereafter with increased terrorism, an unfortunate event triggered out of a situation where both sides believed they were doing the right thing. So then, what do they see from their point of view? What does it look like from each other's perspective? Uh, and this is a different quote, but it ties in, you don't have to be insane to kill someone. You just have to believe you are right. And that was Taro speaking at a panel uh, called Making Weird Games for Weird People, <laughs> which if you've ever seen Yoko Taro, you know is kind of the deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but this game to me, it, it's, it's just all about perspective. Um, there's some stuff that we can't talk about because it, it heavily spoils the story. Um, but even just from the initial gameplay, the first few hours, you travel to different villages who all have different cultures and different, sometimes different languages and different perspectives on life. And that, that theme is present throughout the game. Mm -hmm. um, asking things like, to what lengths will you go when you believe that you're in the right? Will you justify any action for what you perceive as the greater good? It, it plays with that in a really interesting way and sometimes it does use manufactured tedium um in so far as you know near is trying to save his sister and sometimes you just need money so you do all these menial tasks and chores and uh, you know the other characters will be like why are we doing this and mm -hmm. near will say well i would i would shovel shit if it meant saving my daughter or saving my sister so mm -hmm. that's that's part of it but it's it's really well done. I can't wait to talk about more of it. Uh, it's just A+. Plus. I really like it. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree with what you said, and I like the way, that, the way that that theme of perspective shifts as you play the game. So you start out with, you know, like you said, different cultures and things like that, but that's not always the way that that's presented as you go through it. Yes. There are, there are some really obvious presentations and some, well, I mean, not so obvious. Mm -hmm. But we'll get there in time. Be patient. <laughs> Be patient, listener. We're getting there. Let's talk a little bit about the music. Keiichi Okabe is at the helm here. Some arrangements for the version 1.2 were done by Okabe's team. Uh, particularly one name that I saw multiple times singled out was Kuniyuki Takahashi. What do you think of the music in this? Well... I don't know if you're busy reading your notes or if you were looking at me when you said, let's talk about the music, but like, I got like a glow about me because the music <laughs> in this game is so goddamn good. It's and, really good. Yeah. And it's not a surprise to me after playing Automata because the music in that game is really goddamn good too. And I knew it was the same person at the helm, but this is, this soundtrack's different from the one in Automata in, in a, in a way that I think makes it stand out on its own. In, in its own really cool way. And I, you have some notes here about choral vocals, which are much more present in this game than in Automata. And there's a couple of sections, levels, towns, villages, whatever you want to call them, where the choral vocals are so thick in atmosphere that I like stopped moving my character and just kind of sat there for a while and listened to it, took in the scenery around. It's... Um, that was the thing that really struck me um, about the music before we go deeper, I guess. The intro is 
was the first one that really like caught my attention in terms of music but another one that actually physically made me stop and just listen was the music of the airy yeah that's the one i was talking about yeah it's just incredible i'm curious too i think most people uh you know if we're (laughs) if our sample size is infinite we're taking (laughs) a sample of everybody that has played a near game Mm -hmm. i would venture to guess that more people have played automata than replicant so i'm curious like if you had to describe the music of automata and replicant like with one word what would they be uh i i have some off the dome if you if you want a second to think yeah go ahead when i hear automata's soundtrack it's very dramatic to me like it's it's it fuels drama it pushes Mm -hmm. the drama when I hear replicant, it's more atmospheric. That's the word I was going to say, atmospheric, mm-hmm. for both games. Uh, because what Automata is doing with its dynamic soundtrack builds the atmosphere as the tension or the excitement rises throughout story moments or whatever else is going on when you're playing. This one does a little bit of that, but it's more just like thick atmosphere all the time as opposed to Automata has a lot of really minimalist um, sections when you're going through. Or like maybe there will be, I'm thinking of the desert, where it's just one voice singing. In this game, there's, like you said, choirs uh, of all different kinds. There's there's deep male choirs in this game, which um, you hear a bit less of in video games, I feel like. Uh, so the atmosphere, that's what strikes me. And it, it's thick. The airy is like, listeners just like, if Rick hasn't put that music in the episode already, go listen to that song from the Airy. Come back. You'll know what I'm talking about. You can cut that with a knife. It's really good. Um, One thing that I really like about the compositions here is that they're not based around a melody. So when we when we think of let's say um, Nobuo Umatsu or uh, Koji Kondo, they write really strong melodies, Mm -hmm. and you know they have different approaches to what they do around it. What's interesting about this soundtrack is there's not there are melodies. but by and large, a lot of the hummable material that you can kind of single out and get stuck in your head, it's a result of the accompaniment. It's a result of the harmonic voice leading. It's a result of the chords changing. It's, and, and I love that. I love that. It lends to the atmosphere because you'll be listening and, you know, at one point you'll hear bum, 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 bum. Mm-hmm. Bum, bum, you're like, oh, that's cool. But then the next time that comes around, you're going to notice something different. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't hear that layer before. Yeah. And it's it's really nice. It's it's not quite spectral. Like, it doesn't go that extreme. But it it, it has, they, they play way more with timbre and soundscapes than, you know, somebody like Uematsu or Joe Hisashi would. Mm-hmm. So the, these guys that write incredible melodies. Hi, everybody. Future Rick here. As I was editing, I went back and started to re-listen to some of this, uh, some of the soundtrack, 
and I must have misremembered. There, There is definitely a lot more melody than I was letting on in this episode. There's quite a bit of it. Um, in my brain, what I think happened was I latched on to all of the interesting things that are going on in the harmonic language and in the counterpoint. And there there are many of those. Don't get me wrong. I stand by that. There are a lot of really interesting things going on in the accompaniment, but I might have laid it on a bit thick. There are quite a few melodies in the near soundtrack. So uh, sorry to have misled you. Just wanted to put that little editorial note in here. Still an incredible soundtrack. I definitely recommend checking it out. Okay. Uh, Hey, Pastrick, uh, you want to pick it back up? Thanks, pal. We mentioned the Song of the Airy. Um, the Song of the Ancients is another great one. The Song of the Machines, I don't remember. I think it might be Automatons, but um, that, that comes up in a dungeon. Mm-hmm. These are all just really atmospheric, really indicative of the environments in which they're taking place. Just it's so it's really good. It's really yeah. good. Like yeah, if you haven't heard the soundtrack and you're not like keen to start a 30 hour game, like just go listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, dude. One of the other things, too, that I, I noticed about this one that that makes it stand out. And in my head, I'm always making a subconscious or conscious comparison to Automata because that's what near music was before I played this. So, but the other thing that stands out to me is this game has character themes in a way that Automata doesn't really. There are pieces of music that accompany specific characters in their moments. Um, speaking of Devola and Popola or Kaine or Emil, there are music uh, like uh, what Uematsu would in a Final Fantasy game, you know? And that stood out too. Those are the moments where you're going to hear the melodies for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're. It's really good. It's really good. It's if you liked Automata's music, you're gonna like this music. Uh, if you've never played either, it's it's very unique. I I definitely recommend looking into it. Yeah, uh, it makes playing a lot of the game just a little more bearable. Uh, that's <laughs> I'm maybe laying it on just a little bit thick because we're transitioning into the mechanics. Mm-hmm. So again, like as we mentioned before, version one point two, what we have now, it's vastly improved. We can't really, Dave and I can't really speak to the original and how that handled because we haven't played it. But mm-hmm. by all accounts, I have heard that it's not great. Yeah, same. The uh, The common rhetoric around the original Nier is great story, bad gameplay. Or like, I, I don't know, maybe you would say like horribly aged. I don't know if it was bad back in 2010. Can't say. But that seems to be the common um, common thing you hear. Yeah, and thankfully Platinum knows what they're doing when it comes to character action games. So if you've played Automata, Automata, then you're going to feel more or less at home. Yeah. Uh, You attack with square and triangle. You've got some light attacks, some heavy attacks. They all combo. They all air combo. Uh, You can charge them a little bit. You can do finishing blows. It's a lot of what you might expect. Uh, One thing that's different in this re remake, remaster, reimagining, definitive version, uh, is that you can now use magic and melee at the same time. Oh, you couldn't do that in the original? <laughs> I I didn't check myself, but I I have heard that. Okay. If true... Uh, if, that, if that's not true, then, you know, just skip ahead, ignore me, <laughs> call me a... Send rate us com- one star on Spotify. Send your complaints to Ben. 
if we're wrong here. <laughs> yeah. He's going to open it and be like, what the fuck's a near? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you can, um, in this game, magic is controlled with the shoulder buttons. You can actually remap all of the shoulder and trigger buttons between your magic, your dodge, and your block. Did you do that at all? No, I, I saw that that was like an option and I was like, oh, so if you really wanted to just go all out, you could play this without a dodge button if you wanted to. You, like you can't, you wouldn't be able to use three magic spells at the same time. You'd run out of magic too quickly. So I don't know how useful that would actually be, but it certainly seemed like you could do that. In in theory, yeah. I, I would be quicker to get rid of block. I think you could probably go through this whole game without blocking if I'm being honest probably yeah it's it's something that i like to do just because when you get that parry at the right time it's really satisfying um mm -hmm. in this game if you parry an enemy it's it's kind of like any other i, I don't know it's kind of like dark souls uh, <laughs> there we <laughs> I'm go just kidding i i wouldn't know uh <laughs> i you know i actually last night i downloaded demon souls onto my ps5 my man hell yeah i <laughs> i'm thinking of giving the souls game a, like a fifth try <laughs> well if it sticks Hit up your friend Dave. <laughs> I'm man. I'm hoping it does stick because I've got every Dark Soul and I want to like them. But uh, <laughs> that's another podcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, my my journey to grace. But um, in this game, yeah, you you can remap that. I don't think. Uh, so so here's here's how I felt about it. A lot of this magic is really cool. There are like two that you need, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Which two did you feel like were necessary? Uh, the two that I had equipped almost every time were Dark Blast, just the very first one that you get. Uh huh. Uh, Dark Blast is kind of like you hold down R one, and Grimoire Vice will just shoot. You know, it's it kind of it's it's like a shoot 'em up. You know, yeah, just like a yeah a rapid fire, sort of yeah, like that. Yeah, like Automata. Um, yeah. the other one that I used a lot was the dark lance because yep. you could charge that one up by like a factor of 10. Same here. Yep. I would run around charging, building up like a, a row of dark lances, shoot them out. Um, I tried a lot of the other ones and they just didn't seem useful really. Like the big hand punch one takes too long to fire. The one that shoots like spears out of the ground seemed cool, but I was like, I never felt like I needed it. This game wasn't that hard, you know? It's funny. They all look way cooler than the two that are the most useful. Yeah. But you don't need them. I, I tried my first playthrough. I used um, the one that shoots out a doppelganger. That, yeah. that one is kind of useful. But yeah, like the, the coolest looking one, in my opinion, is the crowd control where the spikes come out of the ground and mm -hmm. impale the enemies. But it's so slow and you can't always predict it. It... it it doesn't kill them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I don't know. I largely, I just didn't even use them this, yep. this playthrough. Same. What'd you, so how'd you feel about this? Like, like, I don't, I don't know how you felt about the gameplay um, in this game and in Automata 2. And if you've played other like platinum game stuff and how it compares to that. So my, as far as I can remember, the only like character action games, and I don't even know that platinum was involved in this that I played has been Devil May Cry. Okay. Uh, and I've only played one, two, and three uh, as a kid. I played I, I played three in 2020, and I just wasn't feeling it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. The, the combat feels, and, and this is 
sort of the same in Automata too. It, it's a bit mashy, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to learn combos. You don't have to learn patterns. It helps, but you don't need to. Yeah, you, you definitely don't. And this ends up feeling like I know Platinum Games consulted on this or like someone from Platinum Games consulted and Platinum Games made the sequel. But this definitely feels like, you know, we have Platinum Games at home type combat. Like it's flashy. You can dodge around. You can air juggle for a little bit if you want to. But character action in Platinum Games, you're like constantly building up to like stronger and stronger attacks, like ultimate attack type stuff. And there's nothing like that in this game. You do the same, you know, four or five hit combos over and over and over in this game. You mix in magic to mix it up or if you have to, but like the, the gameplay was fun sometimes and other times it was like, I'm just going to press square 60 times in a row until everything's dead. That's true. You don't get a different move set by the end of this game. You get new magic and you do get new weapons. Yeah. I, I suppose we could talk about the weapons now. It's not entirely a spoiler. Mm-hmm. I, so you get, you start off before the time jump, you can only use short swords. After the time jump, you gain the ability, I guess, through vigorous high intensity interval training or P90X, <laughs> you gain the ability to wield broadswords and spears. Uh, broadswords are useless. I, I hate them. Oh, the big heavy ones? I'm, I could, I, yeah. I use those sometimes, but mostly not like. They look cool because you look at the stats and you're like, this does 800 damage. But then, you know, you can swing it once in the time you can swing any other weapon six times. So it's it's just kind of fun to play around with if you're getting tired of the short sword combos or something like that. But, you know. I wanted to love them. Um, but like you said, they're, they're so slow. You only really need them if an enemy is armored uh, and that'll kind of chip off the armor. But mm-hmm. outside of that, I... I tried. I could not get into them. Uh, yeah. Short swords are fine. They're your standard kind of fare. Spears are kind of the same as short swords. I mean, you get extended combos, and they generally do more damage. So they're like, they kind of replace short swords once you yeah. find a good one. Honestly, man, what, what happened was like, I would pick up a new weapon. I would check its stats if the stats were comparable or better, I would equip it. And then I would forget what weapon I had equipped for like five hours. And then I'd pick up a new weapon and I'd be like, Oh, that's right. Maybe I should try something else. And then you can go upgrade your weapons too. And it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, Oh, I can upgrade my weapon. That's cool. And, or I can't upgrade my weapon. Oh, well I'll be okay. Like again, this game's not that hard. And the combat's button mashy anyway. You just have to not not get hit on purpose. I feel like you'll do fine. And speaking of the difficulty, this game is not one that changes appreciably if you play on easy versus hard. Um, it The enemies don't change. I mean, you don't get any new combos. The enemies don't, you know, get more intelligent. It just, they take longer to kill. They become yeah. enemy, uh, they become bullet sponges or mm-hmm. sword sponges, <laughs> word sponges. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, that's after my first playthrough, I just cranked it down to easy. Um, and honestly, man, like going through this playthrough, uh, this is my second full playthrough, and I'm doing as many side quests as possible. 
uh, which is, I, I guess we didn't talk about that, but um, I'm doing as many side quests as possible. So I'm getting more gold and more experience so I can mm-hmm. upgrade my weapons and I'm getting more levels. I'm on normal and I'm just breezing through. It's yeah. it's not hard. Not hard. And I honestly would recommend, because like we've talked about, how the combat system is not very deep. You don't need to strategize. You just need to hit the attack button enough times and don't get hit too many times yourself. That's it. So play this game on easy is my recommendation for people starting. It's not going to change anything about your playthrough except some of the enemies late in the game take way too long to kill and not under leveled or anything. They're just, they have a ton of HP. So knock that down a little bit. Um, take some of the, uh, I mean, unless you just love hitting the same enemy over and over and over and over again, then go for it. But that's my recommendation. If I replayed it, 100% would be on easy. The only argument, I mean, when I say the only argument, I, I can envision a person, you know, that says, well, like, I really like this combat and I want to have more of it. Okay. That's fine. Then, mm-hmm. then play on normal, play on hard. That's fine. Um, if you're a weirdo that thinks easy is for babies, <laughs> I, we've made fun of you before. Why are you listening? <laughs> Just kidding. I'm happy you're here. Patreon.com slash. Um, but uh, the one the one pro that I can say about fights taking longer is this game, and this is really damning with faint praise. This game does something that I hate, and Automata does it too, and that's delivering dialogue, important dialogue during gameplay. Bioshock 1 did this as well with the mm-hmm. uh, the audio diaries. I hate that. I hate it. I can't focus on it. Yeah. If I'm fighting something and Nier is talking to the enemy, I, I, I have such a hard time focusing on what he's saying mm-hmm. and trying to, like, you know, not die. <laughs> and this game puts the subtitles up in the top left corner of the screen. Also, they're not bottom center, like, every single piece of media does top left. So you can't even read the subtitles. I remember in Automata, this, this isn't really a spoiler. You, you fight, uh, you fight two people, uh, 2B and 9S fight two uh, very identical looking people. <laughs> and the whole fight was just them talking and it's, it's exposition. It's yeah. story while you're fighting and it's a tough fight. And, I, what I did in that case, I just watched it on YouTube. I was like, I can't focus on this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why games do this. It's maybe if you like this, if you're somebody that likes this, please let me know <laughs> because I, I can't, I, I just can't put my, I can't empathize with you. I can't, <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. It, it's tough. It's tough to pay attention. Um, especially when it's like a lot of times in a game like this, the things they're saying are not the most, like it's not like bog standard dialogue, right? They're talking about like key story things, like feelings that they have, or maybe like the backstory of what they're fighting against. Um, it's not it's not them talking and being like, "This is a tough fight, isn't it?" You know, not really like that. So, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, I know that's not a big deal to some people, and it seems like I'm being a little melodramatic, but it, it's just a personal gripe. I cannot get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, that's the one reason that you might want to put the difficulty up a little higher. Uh, because on easy <laughs> mode, I definitely missed uh, some dialogue. Oh, and, okay. And that bothers me too. Uh, I, I alluded to side quests. 
there's not a ton to talk about here. Uh, there are just a lot of side quests of varying qualities. I think that the vast majority of side quests in this game are horrible. Terrible, not fun in the slightest. Um, some of them have cool story and like flavor, I suppose, but the amount of shuttle running that you do and the amount of side quests that are, um, I need 10 logs, seven, you know, golden flasks and 10 beetles. Please bring them back to me. Terrible. I hate these type of side quests so much and they don't have the quality of life. Like Xenoblade Chronicles has these side quests too, and they're horrible, but at least when you pick up the 10th beetle, you get your quest reward right then and there. Not in this game, you got a shuttle run back to the person who asked for it. So this is part of the tedium I was talking about. And this, like there is a, we've touched on possible story reasons why they would be designed this way, but then they did it in Automata also. And it just makes me think they don't know how to make fun side quests, I think. That could be part of it. I, I do think it does play into the story well. I mean, for Nier's entire motivation, uh, and this is something, uh, s- somebody said something in a Discord, and I'm going to I'm gonna put a pin in it to bring it up later, but Nier's motivation is entirely to benefit Yona. Yeah. And these side, it's interesting because when, when you have optional side content in games like this, like The Witcher, you always have to approach it in such a way like, okay, is this canon or is this just something extra because we're in a video game? Mm-hmm. It can be both. It can be neither. It can be one or the other. Most of the side quests Nier does to get money to save Yona, which is why I can kind of excuse the tedium. I do, I mean, even Elder, even Skyrim, right? When you do, Skyrim is lousy with fetch missions, mm-hmm. but at least when you're doing fetch missions in Skyrim, you're generally going to a new place, to a place to explore. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, how effective that is, I mean, because Skyrim's dungeons are all kind of the same. But yeah. So, you know, I'm, but at least they're trying. Here, yeah. you don't do that. You're going, you're going to places that you've already been like oh, 12 man. times. Dude, at the, so at the end of the game, I was doing a side quest and they said, go to the junk heap. And I was like, okay, I'm really sick of going to the junk, the junk heap. But I went and I did it. And then I went back, I talked to someone else and they were like, we need you to go to the junk heap. And I was like, if I have to go to the junk heap one more time, I'm going to scream. Yeah, I get, you get <laughs> to that point in this. And I criticized Automata for this too. Uh, they did that in that game as well. Uh, so like there's a much bigger conversation about how the side quests fit into the story and like the motivations. And you're right. This is not a Witcher three thing where people are like, yo, the world is ending. You are the one that's supposed to save the world. Why are you doing these side quests? You know, people like to talk about Ludo narrative dissonance, you know, not in this game. It all serves the story, but I'm very gameplay focused. And I think that these are terrible side quests from that perspective. Yes. I, I I agree completely. Um, the best side quests are going to give you some sort of little world building, um, sometimes just in tiny little vignettes, like this old man lost his dog. You find the dog. Dog's dead. Mm-hmm. Come back. The old man's dead. And it turns out the dog was out hunting for herbs for the man's heart medication. Mm-hmm. Herbs for the heart medication. <laughs> so like those little vignettes, it's like, okay, I don't mind 
doing like fetch quests if it's like that. Yeah. But if it's a fetch quest, just oh, I I can't think of an actual example to get a woman mutton so I can get extra money. Yeah. Like, come on. Which and, is also not a good example because um, this is actually a good point. I don't know if this was a bug in my game or if this is intentional. But uh, did you do that quest early on, like in the very opening village where you can like deliver 10 mutton to the lady for her kids? Uh, yeah, I, I did. Yep. So that never went away for me and I could just keep doing it throughout the entire game. Is that yeah. intentional? I thought it was. I thought it was just her kids being, well, either starving or being little ingrates. I wasn't sure which one it was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, i mean with kids it could be both yeah yeah totally yeah okay i i wasn't sure if my game was just having a little glitch or yeah or what but the but yeah that's the these missions these side quests if you want the extra gold xp maybe want a little bit of a little vignette then do them but by and large well honestly man i don't think they're as optional as they are in most games because in this game if you want to see all the game has to offer, you have to get a bunch of money. And side quests are basically the only real way to make money, unless you want to go grind for items, which is worse than doing the side quests, I think. So you got to do a good number of these, I think. That's a great segue. Um, what Dave is referring to is the number of endings this game has. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this game has a total of five endings. And for two of them, well, actually, technically for three of them, C, D, and E, you have to have collected all of the weapons. You don't have to upgrade all of the weapons because that would be a, 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 a goddamn nightmare, but you have to at least have them. I, I think this is really stupid. Um, there's, and, and that's purely because, like, if you're going to be doing this kind of thing, even if you have to, uh, even if you have to uh, fart out a diegetic reason, at least try. There's no diegetic reason for us to collect all these weapons. It's just the the dev team saying, yeah, yeah, do this. Yeah, it kind of feels that way. I've had a, a very believable and uh, interesting theory posed to me about how this fits the theme of um, frustration I was talking about earlier. And I'll bring it up when we talk about endings C and D. I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair. I look forward to hearing it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm very conflicted on, cause I, on one hand, I think that it's cool. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, it's not fun in any way to collect all 30, 33 of the weapons, however many there were. I mean, I had to get out a guide. God forbid I wasn't playing with a guide. I would have had to, it would have taken me a lot longer. And we'll get into more of like how those endings are triggered once we get into them. Ending yeah. A and then ending B as well, I think. Uh, they happen automatically. You don't mm -hmm. have to worry about any of this. Uh, so put a pin in that for now. Uh, but just wrapping up, uh, I think we hit on everything in terms of the core game itself. Uh, that, you know, at least everything that... Uh, needs to be introduced now rather than as it comes up. But mm -hmm. do you have any closing thoughts about uh, this before we get into the story stuff? Not anything like, not anything gameplay wise or anything like that. But I guess if people are going to tap out before we start talking about the story, I just want to say that I think the story is really good. And 
we've talked about some frustrating things along the way, but I'm still very glad that I saw it through to the end. I'll just say that. 100% agreed. 100%. Um, This is a game that I I really think you should experience before listening to this episode. Um, Even if you're a self-proclaimed, I don't mind spoilers, this isn't going to spoil the ending, but this is going to spoil a lot of the journey up to that. And it's just, it's a really special game. And I don't wish for you to do that, but I can't stop you either. It's mm-hmm. just Dave and I's rec- mutual recommendation. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I did want to touch on, I didn't really have a better place to put this. Uh, the near timeline is split <laughs> a lot. Um, and what I mean by that is if you want to play, if you played Automata, you liked it, you could play near Replicant, and those two work as a unit. And it's fine. You're going to have a great experience. If you want the full Neariverse, then you're going to need to play Drakengard. There are tie-ins with other games. Uh, there's the anime, which I wouldn't be surprised if Yoko Taro just slips in a new bit of canonical information into. Mm-hmm. There are Japanese-only books. Uh, Grimoire, Grimoire Near is the book that came out. It's entirely in Japanese, but it contains all the lore. The wiki is a great resource. I, Yoko Taro just tends to insert canonical information into the smallest of things. Uh, like, for example, there is a, I think it's a mobile game called Sino Alice, mm-hmm. and they had a collaboration collaboration event with Near Automata, and there's just new canonical information that you can only find there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, on, on one hand, like, there's a part of me that gets excited about it because it's like finding treasure, where uh-huh. you don't expect it, or like going on a treasure hunt. The the majority of me is like, that's dumb. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, it's as as someone who like I've made peace with the fact that I'm not going to be like an expert on the lore in this game, this series, or most series, um, even ones that I really care about. So part of me just is like, this very funny that Yoko Taro is just embracing chaos with these type of things. He's just like, I don't care that you want a compact and nice uh, tied up with a bow story. I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. And you're either going to deal with it and you're going to go find it or you're not. And you're not going to know the story. How you, how you handle that is up to you. <laughs> it, it, he thrives in chaos, man. He yeah. really does. But that's <laughs> when he produces some of his best stuff. So it's, uh-huh. it's tough to be mad. Yeah. I, I think at the very least going wiki diving into some of the stuff from Drakengard 1 tying into Nier that they never really fully explain can be really helpful. In some ways, it's kind of mandatory because we really don't get a full explanation for the beginning of the game, uh, which we're about to talk about. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's wiki diving is free. It's, you know, you can do it in bed. It's it's a nice thing to do uh, for this series particularly. Well, that about, I mean, that about does it before we get into the nitty gritty of the story. I recommend anybody that likes JRPGs or action, char- character action games, platinum games, if you're into that stuff, give this a try. It's really, really good. The PC port is kind of mid, like it's, they didn't really try with it, but on the <laughs> PS5, it looks and plays great. Uh-huh. On the PC port is fine for what it is. Uh, you're going to be locked at 60 FPS, uh, and you don't have a lot of customization. But what can you do? Yeah, it's it's just it's really good. It's really accessible. Play it. Yep, yep. agreed. And I also I want to reference my little review at the beginning by just saying 
if you value the ways that a video game can deliver a narrative in a way that like only a video game could, you know, th- I don't, I'm not sure that the, this, they would have to retool this to make it into, um, an, a, another medium in anime. If they're going to tie this into the near automata anime somehow, I'm not sure, but the, the way that this game deals with, uh, the way that the story is presented, I think it's video game stuff. And if you value creative ways that game developers tell stories using the full extent of the medium, then this is a really good example of that, I think. Absolutely agree. I can't imagine this or Automata, to be honest, as anything other than a video game. I'm looking forward to seeing the anime. But yeah, yeah, that that about does it. We're going to jump into talking about the story as we experience it. Uh, before I do that, I'm taking a cue from Dave's show, and uh, I'm gonna have if you're tuning out, if you're dropping out before we get into spoiler story stuff, uh, I'm gonna let Dave talk about his podcast a little bit. Uh, I've been a guest on both of Dave's shows, a top three podcast in Tales from the Backlog. I like them both very, very much. Uh, they are in obviously in constant rotation, constantly in my download queue. Um, they're, they're really, really good. And I want Dave to talk about them just a little bit. Hey, thanks, man. Um, always a pleasure talking with you. I think, I think you, you might be the most frequent guest on Tales from the Backlog. Uh, so the pleasure or the, yeah, the pleasure is mutual, my friend. Um, Oh man, how many, it's been Disco, Yakuza 7, 13 Sentinels. And then we got another one in the pipeline coming. In the pipeline. Oh, man, I forgot. I yeah. almost forgot about that one that is supposedly my favorite game ever. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. So um, Tales from the Backlog is a show not unlike Pixel Project Radio, where every episode is a either a topic discussion, but more commonly a video game deep dive review. And... The structure is kind of similar, although I, I don't do the straight run-through of the story in most of my episodes, but I do have a no-spoiler deep-dive breakdown of the first half of every episode where we, we do what Rick and I have been doing. We talk about mechanics, we talk about you know story, character, themes, music, visuals, all that stuff, uh, but key to not spoil as much as possible so that... If you haven't played, let's say, Near Automata, I have an episode that came out um, in the fall. So if you haven't played that, you can listen to that episode, find out what I feel to be detailed uh, thoughts about it, and not be spoiled. You can tap out at the very clear uh, demarcation for spoilers. So that's Tales from the Backlog, and a top three podcast is much simpler. We do top three lists about media, food, stuff like that. Um, I think that one's a good time. It's me and uh, my buddies from high school. We have, uh, not to, you know, toot my own horn with my resume here, but we have 20 plus years of experience doing top three lists. It's pretty impressive, I think. (laughs) So I was on the edge of my seat until the very end of that sentence. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So Um, uh, Rick was on that show too. He was on the um, top three Beatles songs episode that we did. So if you want a good place to start there, find your friend Rick. And, you know, it's not just four dudes shooting the shit, which is the my golden rule in podcasting is to not be four dudes shooting the shit mm-hmm. or three dudes shooting the shit. It's not that. It's more than that. It's got a hook there. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, I think our mutual friend Charlie called it uh, a lot of chaotic energy. I re- <laughs> yeah. I, and I really like it. Tales from the Backlog. 
look, sometimes I'm not in the mood to hear a podcast or a YouTube essay detailing an entire story. Tales from the Backlog is great for that. They don't go through every single story beat like we do here. Um, it's more generalized. There's 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 the same level of intense conversation, but you know sometimes you don't want a play by play. Yeah. Sometimes I don't want a play by play, but mm-hmm. I got to make the show, so I got to <laughs> do it. You yeah. guys can just go listen to Dave's yeah. show. No, I'm kidding. Don't don't listen to don't don't leave our show for Dave's show. Listen to both <laughs> shows. Plenty of room in your life. What yeah. what do you got going on? Nothing. That's what you exactly. Just kidding. I'm not trying to antagonize our listeners <laughs> right now. That is how you grow a community, Rick. You antagonize your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you idiots. <laughs> I've got more content. Open wide, piggies. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. We we love all of you. We wouldn't be doing this without you. But yes, uh, I I recommend Tales from the Backlog to everybody. A top three uh, to anybody that's into. The, the more uh, unstructured, just fun podcast. Recommend that to them. Mm-hmm. Great shows. Uh, great shows all around. Thank you, man. Yeah, dude. Now, uh, let's let's not keep this happy positivity up for too much longer because we're <laughs> about to travel into the not-so-distant future after a horrifically tragic catastrophe. Let's talk about the story of Near Replicant. So this game immediately starts out with a hook, but in the PC version, and maybe the PS5, I don't quite remember, I think you don't get to see this hook unless you let the title screen idle, but it was a forced intro in the original Mir Gestalt, and I'm just going to let it play, because it's short, and it's to the point. Vice, you dumbass! Start making sense, you rotten book, or you're gonna be sorry. Maybe I'll rip your pages out one by one, or maybe I'll put you in the goddamn furnace. How can someone with such a big, smart brain get hypnotized like a little bitch, huh? Oh, Shadow Lord, I love you, Shadow Lord. Come over here and give Vice a big, sloppy kiss, Shadow Lord. Now pull your head out of your goddamn ass and start fucking helping us! So the first time I heard that, (laughs) I just, I was immediately hooked. It's... Games like this, it's really interesting when a fantasy setting like this incorporates modern day speech. Mm-hmm. It always, like that dissonance is very pronounced and it always catches my attention. I don't always think it's good, but it always catches my attention. They did this in The Witcher as well. Like they just throw on fucking shit in The Witcher too. Uh-huh. Uh, and here, uh, this character who we have yet to meet is calling somebody a little bitch and get your head out of your fucking ass and it's it's really good i it just hooks you immediately mm-hmm. and what what came after was the real hook for me um this this game starts out super strong this yes this this intro is awesome uh it's it's so good so we we start off we get this sort of panning over a destroyed city we're not sure where it is yet although as we progress uh, out of this intro sequence, we do get a passing shot. It is revealed 
that we are in, depending on which version you're playing, <laughs> New York or Tokyo. Oh, okay, you I thought either was, see... I was going to say like Denver, some weird city, <laughs> you know, Pittsburgh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah, we're in Azure, formerly Heinz Stadium. <laughs> no, we are. Um, you can see as we head out of this intro, you will either see the Empire State Building or the Tokyo Tower. Mm. So it is implied that a catastrophe took place in a real place, and this is the aftermath. What's interesting about this beginning is, you know, we're seeing this. Everything is destroyed. It's dilapidated. It's snowing. And then we see the the year come up, 2053, summer. So immediately you're saying, well, what the hell is happening here? It's, It's snowing. Is there a climate disaster? Is this nuclear fallout? Some kind of catastrophe has occurred. Like, two hooks right after one another. Really great. Yeah, it's good. Maybe a little bit less surprising to me because I played this after Automata, which is also post-apocalypse. So I kind of thought that this was just, this is near, which it is. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is where knowing a little bit about Drakengard 3 comes into play. Uh, Again, I'm not going to spoil it, but it is the aftermath of that. Uh, We kind of get pushed into a destroyed, modern-looking building. We hear a disembodied voice asking this hooded boy to take his power, saying, you know, take my power. You can save all I ask. It's it's just this fading in and out. Uh, But the boy kind of gets startled awake. He's sort of snoozing next to a wall and he gets startled awake and immediately, you know, curses at the book and kicks it. Uh, This immediately throws us into a fight with shadow people. We learn it's not really a spoiler. We learn that they're called shades. And uh, it's I think it's what Nomura wished the Heartless could be because <laughs> they're cooler. <laughs> I wish I got that reference, but maybe I live a blessed life not knowing what the Heartless look like. Wait, hold, really? Kingdom Hearts? Have you never played Kingdom Hearts? No, never. I've never seen Kingdom Hearts. You've never seen it? I have no idea what the Heartless look like. I listened to Eric talk about it, but I've never seen it. Does Eric know? I don't know. He does now. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. I'm I'm surprised. Okay. Well, uh they the shades look like cooler versions of the <laughs> imagine shades but disnified. And that's <laughs> okay. kind of the heartless. Okay. <laughs> um there's a girl nearby. Uh she is she's clearly close to us in some way. We don't know the relationship just yet, and it's implied that she's very sick. But we're sort of protecting her with these, uh, from these shades. At uh, at a certain point, we warn her not to touch the book as we go to look around. But the thing is, is it can't be the same book because we we kicked our book away, mm-hmm. and then we had to walk over to this girl. But it's the same book. This be- this is important later, and I don't even know if the game fully explains this, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah. Uh, but it is a detail that makes sense once we get a certain ways into the story. Okay, yeah. I thought it was two separate books the whole time, so good to know. The shadows do get the best of you, and they sort of knock you down. You're using the last of your strength. You're crawling towards this book, and you're saying, you know, I just, I need more power, I need more power, and then you touch it, and immediately you're just engulfed in this red and black light, and that's when it's revealed 
the power of the book is maybe more than we were anticipating. This giant red and black fist punches through the first waves of the shadows, decimating them, clotheslining them. It's not even close. The power, it, it's like, it's clearly showing us that this book is powerful. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, it's floating right next to you. This has to be some kind of a magical book, apparently. Mm -hmm. And we're thrown into what is essentially a huge tutorial on how you're going to be playing the game for the next 30 hours. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I noticed when I saw this the second time was that the shades you fight in this opening fight is every type of shade that you'll see throughout the entire game. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to dwell on, you know, lots of mechanical things, but there are like six different enemies in a 30 hour game really kind of got to be a drag, but this opening scene where you're fighting them, you level up like 35 times in 10 seconds. Um, it's it's really cool how you start out, you know, you, you have like a lead pipe before you touch the book. That's how you're fighting. And then you're suddenly, you are a force of destruction. These things really, it doesn't matter how many they throw at you in this opening thing. You're fighting like a hundred of them at once. And yeah, the power of the book, you just, you destroy all of them pretty effortlessly. And I love how they do this. You know, you're leveling up once a minute. You're getting new spells almost just as quickly. Mm -hmm. And you're fighting every shade in the game that you're eventually going to see. They're, they're taking you through how this what this game is going to throw at you. And they're doing it all. Not only are they doing it all right at the beginning to kind of set you up for it, but there's even a diegetic reason for why, uh, why we don't retain those levels. And that'll make sense in, in a minute here. I'm mm -hmm. not trying to get too far ahead, but they, <laughs> they tied it into the story. It's so, it's just so well done. I love this. It's such a good intro. Yeah. And especially like if you play a bunch of RPGs, it's, it's pretty uncommon for you to play through a sequence where you level up a bunch of times in the span of like one minute. So you're like, wait, something's up here. Like this is, this isn't normal leveling up, you know, even if you want to think about it that way. Right. Inside, after you fight off all of the shadows, you go back inside. Uh, this girl's name is Yona. I'm, I'm pretty sure you've said that at least once uh, mm -hmm. in the game. But you go back in to check on her, uh, and she sort of collapses into this coughing fit. And that's when you see a black set of letters just sort of appear like like a living tattoo onto her neck. And uh, there's, a, there's this shot that goes from that to the book that's on the ground. And after we, we, we just saw our character touch that book. So we don't know what these things can do. And before you can ask her, like, you know, hey, did you touch the book? Why did you touch the book? Uh, she says, you know, I, I just wanted to help you. You're always helping me. And then she faints. And you kind of just scream out for help as you as we pan across New York or Tokyo. And that kind of <laughs> that kind of concludes the intro. Yeah. It's really good. I love the uh, the visual design of the the black lettering. Um, every time it comes up in the game, I'm always like, that's just very cool looking. Terrible, horrible, but very cool looking. Yeah, this this game does some interesting things with language that I, you know, I don't think, I wouldn't call language a theme in this game, but it does use language in a very effective way. Um, you know, maybe tying into the thing about perspective, but uh, it's it, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very cool. 
so that's our intro. We kind of, you know, we get our credits, we fade, and then we get a message that we are 1,412 years into the future. So just a just an arbitrary big time jump. Yeah. Um, but don't worry. I mean, civilization hasn't changed. We can we still speak English or Japanese, depending on what you're playing. So this is like the Final Fantasy X thing, where you go like so far into the future, but really nothing's changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always makes me laugh a little. Like, oh, you jumped a thousand years, but like you guys are still playing Blitzball. Yeah, Blitzball. Really? Blitzball endures everything. Time erodes everything except for Blitzball. Yeah. Uh, but. Well, we love Final Fantasy X around here, so that's okay. But mm -hmm. uh, yes, we are 14, 12 years into the future, but we seem to be the same guy. Yeah. And What's that about? The first time I saw this, I was like, I, I actually, the first time I saw this, I paused and I went onto YouTube and I watched the whole intro again. I was like, what did I miss? But I didn't miss anything. This is just another hook. Yeah. And this is, this is the one, so like the... The hook with fighting the shades and, you know, touching the book and stuff, that was that was good. It was interesting. I was like, I'm in. Okay, this is cool. And then after the time jump, when you see that you're the same character or seemingly the same character, I was like, oh, that's, I am all caps. I'm in, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're the same character. Your sister is there too, Yona. I mean, she seems to be there. Um, I think you can ascertain pretty quickly she's still sick. So it's kind of setting you up to assume these are the same people, but mm -hmm. how can that be if we're over a thousand years into the future? Right. Well, we find out. <laughs> um, the setting now <laughs> is nowhere near what we were, <laughs> nowhere near. Oh God. <laughs> well done. What we were just in. Uh, <laughs> this setting is very green. Uh, it's very hilly. It's like a little village uh, next to, next to a lake. Um, it's, it, it kind of reminded me like, like, I don't know, like a, British or an Irish just countryside yeah. sort of yeah hill country type of thing yeah yeah it's a uh, it's kind of cool you uh in the beginning here you're gonna go out and run some errands um you take care of Yona and because of that you need to win food win money etc so that's what you're doing here first uh you head to the library it's the biggest possible building in this area uh, you can talk to some folks that are in there. You learn that people can't read the ancient language of these books, uh, which is sort of, it's just more flavor text to let you know that civilization is starting anew because of something that happened. Some kind of horrific event happened. Uh, houses, even your house is clearly rebuilt after being demolished. The whole area has this rebuilt sort of aesthetic to it. So, the, the game is letting us know in no uncertain terms. Something happened. We are living in the aftermath. Uh, but this is where you meet somebody that you're going to be spending a lot of time with. Uh, her name is Popola. So what uh, you have played Automata before. Yes. Automata. So what did you think when you found Popola? Well, I knew from talking to a bunch of people about Near Automata that Popola and Devola, her, you know, twin sister. I'm not sure what the relationship is there, but they're both, I knew that they were from this game originally. And I kind of had something about their role in Automata relates to this game. And I had that spoiled for me. 
by talking, by having those conversations. So I knew that they would be here, but I didn't know that they would be so soon and that they would be in these kind of village leader type of roles that they're in, you know? So that was cool given what happens in Automata. (laughs) This is the one thing that I think, like if you've played Automata first, I, I think you're still going to vastly enjoy this game. But if you have, it tells you a lot about uh, the events that happened during and after Replicant. And I can see that as being a bit of a bummer uh, to have that reveal spoiled. Yeah. I don't think it's a deal breaker. No. But maybe a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Uh, but Popola, and you're going to find that she does this a lot, she's going she's gonna to make you run errands. Because uh, again, we're running errands to get money for our sister. Take care of her. Mm-hmm. It all stems back to that. It, it kind of seems like, so, like that's Nier's role in the village. That's his job. He just, he's a mercenary of sorts. He, something, if, if there's danger on the road, he's going to go try and take care of it. If someone needs some errands run, he's going to help out. It seems like, cause like th- this isn't like your first day running errands. It did, never felt like that. It felt like this is what he does every day. He goes out, he runs errands for people. He gets his money buys medicine for Yona, that's his life. And so I I put a pin in this earlier. Um, Somebody in a mutual discord that we're in had mentioned that they they saw Nier as the good boy archetype, you know, like Chrono from Chrono Trigger. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I don't, I, I I think it's close, but the reason I don't fully buy into it is because Nier has his own set of desires and wants. At the end of the day, everything we do is for Yona. Mm-hmm. Where it gets tricky is like there are some optional side quests where it seems like you're just helping just to be a good guy. But then we get into the area, well, if it's optional, how does that fit, you know, with into the story analysis? Uh, you know, the 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 Black Hunt is on the hunt for Siri, uh, but Geralt is going and playing Gwent and winning tournaments. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are some things that you have to acquiesce when you're like thinking about analyzing in this way I and, and but that's the reason that I don't see near as just a, a good boy archetype he's not a golden retriever he does everything for Yona um and indeed at a certain point uh his personality shifts so much that I wouldn't even call him a good boy anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's that's later that's much later yeah yeah I think I agree with you there he's he's definitely like I definitely do get the sense just from his personality that had Yona not been sick or had she just had the flu, he would still be doing stuff if people asked him, but that would, that's, I don't know how useful that kind of like conjecture is because he is just, his main goal is to get medicine for Yona or to uh, get money to buy, you know, food or whatever else. Cause they don't have parents. It's just the two of them. Uh, so he's the one who has to take care of her. Even if she's not sick, she's still a little girl. He's got to take care of her, you know? Yeah. I don't think it's harmful to, you know, um, make conjecture about, you know, what if, or, you know, what would happen if, but, you know, at the end of the day, the authors have given us this character's motivation, uh, pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. So whether or not near would, if Yona wasn't sick, I mean, would he? Yeah, probably. But, it's almost neither here nor there. Yeah, she is. I, sick, I don't know. So, you know, he's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to call near a good boy. Um, but you know, link or chrono, he is not. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I just want to push us ahead a little bit here uh, so this doesn't go on for too long. Um, as you're going out and finding Aaron, uh, finding Aaron's, doing errands for Popola, you will encounter shades. Couple of interesting things here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, and Dave, I don't know if you noticed this, the shades will not attack you if you don't attack them. I did not notice that because I'm a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> Would you kindly kill these shades? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, that that is so on the nose what you just said too <laughs> um, for this game. And there's not a reason for you. Be, we, we wouldn't think about it, right? It's it's the Bioshock problem. We, we're going, we see a bad guy, we kill it. But if you don't attack them, they will come up to you and sort of like sniff at you and then just just kind of hang out. Hmm. This is such a, oh, this foreshadowing is amazing. Yeah. It's really good. If you try to leave and not even attack them, Nier gets into this, I have to protect the village. I have to destroy the shades. It's really good. Um, they also tend to drop things like old school books. Yep. Which I didn't notice my first playthrough. And now my second playthrough, I'm like, how did I not notice? This? Exactly. Yep. Same. <laughs> it's so, it's well, really I know how I didn't notice. It's because I'm not paying attention to stuff like this. I pick up an old school book and I say, oh, old school book. I wonder if I can sell this. Um, yes, sell this for money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm the type of person you, I just listened to your, your top uh, twists episode. And I think I said it in the discord server, but I don't catch foreshadowing ever. I am a experience, the person experience the story and not think too hard about what's happening. I'll think about it later. I'm that type of person. So I uh, know this was all just like, Oh, there's uh there's shades out here. I killed them in the prologue. Let's, let's get to work. I like being that kind of person. I, I more or less am too. Sometimes like sometimes I'll catch it and then it just starts a thought process and then I think about it. Um, but I would prefer to not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just that that's why, you know, if games weren't so long, I would play every game twice before actually like talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. But you Luck- can't. Luckily, games this are game, long. you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can. And how. Uh, so <laughs> when you get home, you talk to Yona a little bit. Um, she says Popola told her about this lunar tear, which is a very rare flower and a very important symbol in the near universe. Uh, and it, it's worth a lot of money. This is particularly funny if you are Papa near because Yona says, if we got one, could it, could it cure my illness? And you just go, yeah, man. <laughs> like even my first playthrough i'm like why would you say that you know what's gonna happen at this point dude and sure enough what happens the next day yona's gone because surprise surprise uh she went talking to popla about asking where lunar tears grow and she went off to the lost shrine to look for them this is near's fault like mm-hmm. <laughs> why are you giving this child such dangerous information and why also, did popola tell her and also where, popola where they grow? yeah it's like where do lunar tears grow oh they grow in the lost shrine the most dangerous <laughs> place right next to the village well here, see you later here, yona let me mark it on your map for you <laughs> yeah exactly off you go oh they like they're in the business of endangering children <laughs> you go obviously you're going to go look for yona this uh, going to the Lost Shrine for the first time is so cool. Yeah, it is in the it's this towering shrine in the middle of of a canyon, and ruins are just surrounding it. 
Uh, it's on a single pedestal. The camera zooms out as you approach it. Yeah. I love uh, both near games do this really well. When they get, when they want to give you a sense of scale, they'll zoom the camera way back out to let you see how big this thing is that you're going toward. I don't know if you noticed. I noticed this um, the second time I played. In the background are um, skyscrapers, like ruins of skyscrapers in the background. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if cinematography is the right word. I don't know if like I don't know if film people will be like that's our word. Don't use it. But <laughs> the cinematography <laughs> the cinematography in the near games is ah uh, it's it's very good. Yep. It's very good. Um we go inside this lost shrine. We are here for a reason and we find Yona passed out on an altar. Uh this this is really interesting imagery. Uh, it's got a sort of religious undertone to it because Yona Yona's laid out in a way where she could either be seen to be worshipped or being laid out as a sacrifice. We don't know. I, I don't think religious is the right word, but it, it's that sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm talking out of my ass a little bit. Well, the the music in The Lost Shrine certainly supports that, too. It's, it's very yes. deep, uh, again, choral, um, very... I don't know the word for it, but religious type music, I feel like. The feeling that I got upon a second playthrough seeing this is they're kind of communicating that Yona's in trouble, but not dire trouble. Right. You know, there's, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, she's being guarded on this altar by two armored statues. Uh, they look kind of just like heads with limbs. Like, uh, like take Mr. Potato Head, but make him twist it. Uh, and between them is a black book. Mm-hmm. So shades start showing up. They still aren't fighting back, by the way. And uh, we're fighting them. We're murdering them. And then at some point, we're like, oh, I don't have time for this. We start beating the shit out of the black book <laughs> um, to get <laughs> because it's blocking our way to Yona. And eventually the book falls and begins talking. And he says, can you please stop beating me? Um, and suddenly this red and black force field appears around Yona. So uh, the book says, you know, you need my help for this. You can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, bow and ask me. And that kind of sets up this character. We have just met Grimoire Vice, a loquacious and sharp-tongued book that is going to be your companion through the whole game. Mm-hmm. Dave, what do you think about Grimoire Vice as a character? Um, I think that he's mostly entertaining, sometimes annoying. Sometimes it's just a bit rich for my taste, you know, but I did enjoy him as a character and I enjoy how he, he knows and he thinks, and he knows that he is this super powerful being. Um, but then it, it becomes very clear pretty soon after this that he's not at the top of his powers and he he reins it back a little bit but still maintains the cockiness you know like whenever someone talks to him in a way that he feels is uh like talking down to him or not giving him the proper respect or something he's very much like i i'm not going to do the voice but i am grimoire vice and you will fucking respect my name you know oh so you'll do dr hakeem but you won't do grimoire vice correct do you want me to do (laughs) Dr. Hakeem doing Grimoire Vice lines. Yes. Yes, I do. I want that. What's the guy's name in It Takes Two? Cody? Cody. Cody. Yeah. Hey, Cody! 
Where, where's the where's the blood is sound, my friend? Sound is words. <laughs> words are power. <laughs> you need my collaboration, Cody, if you want to get the sealed verses. Oh my god! If 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 Yoko Taro hears this and thinks this is a good collaboration idea, I I fully support. I it. will chuck <laughs> all of my equipment out of my window. They're both books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the collaboration from hell. Um, that is a very and that that is a real quote that Dave just said. Blood yeah. is sound, sound is words, words are power. Unfortunately, the game doesn't do much with it. It's just it lives and dies there. Mm-hmm. But it is very badass. Yeah. Um, once you accept his help, that's when he says that. By the way, uh, that's when the shades finally begin to attack you. Uh, you know. He's spouting off about how great he is. Nier says, shut up and just help already. Uh, and like you said, he's kind of pissed that we're not showing him respect. Um, this is where you get magic as well. We're familiar with this because it works the same as in the beginning. We just don't get it quite as quickly. And that is because the beating we gave Vice has caused him for to, to forget everything. Oops. How convenient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't really go over the pickup system in this, but as you defeat enemies, they will drop sometimes health health ups but sometimes uh this game is so weird they drop tutorial pieces and sometimes the the words too but yeah yes they tutorial pieces and and the words the words are going to be power ups that you can equip or just new magic the tutorial pieces are exactly what they sound you pick it up and it'll say tutorial gained jumping <laughs> i don't know i don't know i can't for the life of me figure out why they did this yeah, there's some reason that, you know, the only way to learn how to play the game is to keep killing or something like that. I don't know. At any rate, this is where the twin uh, potato head demons begin to attack. Uh, it's a very basic pattern. One shields, one attacks. Not bad at all. When you beat boss enemies like this, uh, they a little timer will come up. A uh, timer in what looks like a fake made-up language, which is a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you beat the shit out of them before the timer runs out. And then you'll do this really cool, like, cinematic attack. Uh, usually involves the vice's magic. Um, we do that. We we throw a spear through one's eye, which really pisses off the one that didn't get got. And then we do the same thing to him a moment later. And that kind of takes care of them. They'll be back later, but for now, they're done. And this is where Yona wakes up. Which is fortunate, because the ruins are collapsing. Uh, so you all run out. Of course, Yona, who we, we can't in, we, we really can't be mad at Yona. She says she's sorry. She just wanted to find a lunatic to help, you know, make us rich. We're always doing things for her. Mm-hmm. You gave us this dangerous information, Dad. What are you doing? <laughs> but we see, we do see for the first time, I think, uh, in this time period, that the Black Scrawl is on her hand. back to Nier's house, Yona's in bed. This is where we learn that the Black Scrawl is fatal. We run into Devola outside, uh, who nobody seems to bat an eye that Grimoire Vice is a floating book that talks. No. She's just like, oh, hey, cool. I know you. You're from this song that I'm singing. Uh, Oh, that's the thing. I love what the arrangers and the composers did with the music here. 
uh, because the the village has a theme. It's called yeah. the Song of the Ancients. Mm-hmm. When you go into the church, the arrangement changes into sort of like glass bells. Yep. Really beautiful. And when you get close to Devola, you hear the vocals yeah. uh, in this made-up language. This was the first song that I heard from this game. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's so good. It's really good. And it's another reason why playing this before Automata is slightly a better idea. Yes. Oh, yes. There is a moment with this and yeah. one of my favorite moments. Yeah, but it is, it's, a, it's a great tune. All versions of it. The, you go in the library so many times in this game that <laughs> at least the music's good. Uh, and speaking of the library, we're going back to there. Between Devola and Popola in the library, we kind of get the details of this song that they're singing. A black book named Grimoire Noir shows up and starts spreading disease and calamity, uh, which we kind of infer is to be the cause of what happened to us before. Mm-hmm. But then a white book, Grimoire Vice, appears and saves everyone with the sealed verses. And this begins the thread that Vice is a key part in saving the world. And as far as we know, that's correct. Yeah, that's the quest. Now we're on the quest. We have our, we're going to go get the sealed verses and that's going to solve our problems. <laughs> so we think. So Vice loves that he's famous. Vice loves that people know him. And I, I think that's very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just great for his character. He's so pompous. Um, but Popola points you towards the Airy, which is a new area uh, that we're going to go to. And off we go. Uh, we've kind of already talked about the airy, but uh, let's talk about what it looks like. Yeah. What did, What did you think of this design? Because so when you when you first walk in, you get hit by the music and the design of it. It's the airy is a village built into the sides of another massive canyon or like a gorge or something like that. So there are these these wooden bridges connecting the two sides, but then there's these metal the houses like made out of iron built into the sides of this, this gorge. And they have these little streamers with little, um, you know, orange flags flapping in the wind and stuff. And it's, it's a striking visual when you walk in there. There are also these extremely weird, um, mazes at the end of it. I'm not sure why those exist in the, uh, in the village there, but the rest of it, seeing what it looks like in combination with the music kicking in, like that was the thing that floored me and I just like you know put the controller down just chill just take this in for about 10 seconds before we keep moving yeah this this area is stupendous I I really like how it's designed um like you said the houses are built into the canyons in the middle of town there are like two platforms just suspended by a huge by huge pillars Mm -hmm. uh, that you have to go across via bridges it's very cool um, I didn't write down why we were coming here. I know we're going to the chief's house, but uh, I don't quite remember why Popola sent us here. Yeah, I don't remember either. You you need to talk to the chief for some reason or another. Maybe the chief knows knows the location of one of the sealed verses or something. It's it's yeah, it's more errands. It's not super story important. Yes. As you're walking around the village, though, you can hear people in their huts saying how they don't trust you. Strangers aren't welcome. You're one of them. Uh-huh. And they specifically name drop somebody named Kaine. So we don't, we don't, none of, none of this makes any sense to us right now. Yeah. But we don't find anything there. The chief won't help us. So we leave. But on our way out, we notice this little dwelling that's kind of in this little clearing. 
And in the dwelling, there is a makeshift bed, a painting done with like crayons, and a necklace of lunar tears. Obviously, that catches our attention, but Mm -hmm. really quickly, a woman comes in and tells us to get the fuck out. The first thing that we ask is, hey, Vice, why is she in her underwear? (laughs) Um, And this is our introduction to Kaine. Kaine is one of my favorite characters in all of JRPGs, but uh, especially Nier. Mm -hmm. Uh, She might be my favorite character in both Nier games, actually. Yeah, I, I like her... I like her characterization. She's very funny. Uh, she's very entertaining. She's extremely vulgar, which like you talked about it earlier with the, the, the merging of modern day, especially cursing, right? With fantasy settings kind of doesn't fit in a lot of cases. I think Kaine is fine. Like she is a badass and she talks like a badass too. Um, so I appreciate that. It's very funny because she'll say things like, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And Vice will be like, why? I've, I've never heard yeah, such why? profanity. I've never. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they really clutch their pearls. Yeah, exactly. Um, some, something really funny. Um, so uh, for listeners that maybe don't know, uh, you all know that I, uh, I've been learning Japanese. Dave is actually fluent in Korean. So... One thing that's funny about this, and I don't know if this is the same for Korean, but Mm -hmm. Japanese, the level of politeness uh, or rudeness is baked into the words and the grammar. They don't really have swear words like America does. So what they did in the Japanese version with kaine is they would just bleep out random words with like the actual censor bleep. (laughs) And I don't think it has the effect that they think it was supposed to. It is so funny. Funny. That's weird. Uh, Korean definitely it, has swear words. Um, as a former high school teacher, I'm well aware. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're fun swear words too. What do you, I got to ask you, man, what do you think of Kaine's visual character design? So, okay. So Kaine as a character, she's dressed in lingerie and what do you, what do you call that? There's a name for that. Uh, a can a camisole? It's not a camisole, is it? I have no idea. No. She's she's dressed very provocatively. You you can see her panties, her bra, her uh, whatever lingerie she's wearing is tattered. Um, she's showing a lot of skin. Yeah. You see her entire there, ass with a couple of yeah, you, yeah yeah across. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> um, I mean, we've talked about this with Thirteen Sentinels before. Well, that's different. We we've talked about this just in general before. This doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I can see how this might bother somebody. What I like about this, though, is that that and her vulgarity directly play into her story, her background. And once we learn that, I thought it was a very cool choice. Interesting. I don't remember ever getting a reason for the way she's dressed. Um, And if there is one, feel free to to fill me in. Because I'm curious. I actually read about this, and um, the character designer gave this design to Yoko Taro, and he was like, This is what is this? Like, this is too much. Yeah. And then he got to thinking about it, and he was like, You know what? I actually like this. This is this is gonna be good. I'm gonna figure out something with this. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, that this was not a Yoko Taro original, you know. <laughs> I you know, it wouldn't 
be a deal breaker if they had made her dress more conservatively, but the fact that they made it diegetic. And that's what I'm going to come back to. That's the name of this series is almost everything is thought out. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are things that aren't collect all the weapons just so you can get a new ending. That's stupid. In my opinion, I know you said that you, you have a theory, but I have a theory. I, I, but the way that she's dressed is directly tied into something that we learn when we start playthrough B uh, and we'll get there in time. Okay. All right. It's very cool. But I will say as much as I have whinged in the past about the characters being provocatively dressed, especially when we talked about 13 Sentinels, um, I don't care in this game as much. Number one, she's an adult, very clearly an adult. And number two, um, the rest of her character is not what you would expect from someone who's dressed this way, I would say. So it I actually think canonically she's 16 before the time jump, I think. Before is she? Okay. Well, never mind I think then. She looks the exact same. I'm mad now, Rick. But. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um but she she is presented as an adult. She's not a high school student in the game. Um so I I don't mind as much as people might think I I would based on my past uh you know complaining about character um fashion, we'll say. I think it's funny that like there there is a, a comedy to someone who's dressed like this saying the things that she does. And I thought that was entertaining the whole way. We're gonna we're gonna be hanging out with her a lot more, but right now we actually fight her. Um we learn that she can use magic and we learn that she's at least part shade, which is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, before long, a huge shade appears, uh, a very ugly shade. It's got three legs and then a beefy tail that acts as a fourth leg and sort of like a Balchinian situation going on <laughs> from Men in Black. Nice pull, yeah. <laughs> it's Thank you, thank you. <laughs> We've got the old busted and the new hotness. It, it's hideous, uh, but Kaini fights with us the entire time telling us to stay the fuck out of her way. And she's like, I'm going to kill this asshole. Vice doesn't know what to, he's beside himself. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, we do drive it away, but kind of ends up passing out. She says, go like she doesn't want us sticking around. So we go back. Uh, Yona's getting sicker. So in addition to questing, we're going off to get medicine. Uh, we get sent to the new town of seafront, uh, to get the medicine. Um, that is really our only reason for going there. We go, we get it, we take it back to Yona. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some larger shades in the vicinity. So uh, we get the suggestion to beef up our weapons, which takes us to another new area, the junk heap. I don't mean to skip past Seafront. It's just not a lot happens there. We get to revisit it later. We can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Right now, it doesn't serve much of a purpose. The junk heap is this abandoned sort of factory, and there's a little weapon shop on the outskirts run by two brothers, Jacob and Gideon. Uh, They're low on inventory because their mom, their only parent, has left and hasn't come home for a week, so naturally, we are going inventory hunting. Uh, And mom hunting. Not MILF hunting, mom hunting. Yeah, very different. (laughs) Very different. Yeah. There's a, there's a website for the first one, but uh, that's a different podcast.
the level design of the Junkheap Mountain. It's pretty cool, although we visit it so much that it pisses me off. Yep. <laughs> I, I think I, I had the same thing. The first couple times I was there, I was like, this is a cool factory, and I enjoy the minecart section, you know, doing the the top-down shooter stuff there. Um, and then the 27th time I went to the junk heap, I was like, I hate everything about this. I want to die. I will say I love the music for this. Yeah, uh, it's probably playing right now it's if very I'm doing good. my job. Yeah, very good. It, it's, it's very catchy. I really like it. Um, cutting through some of this chaff, we fight our way through the bottom. We do find the mother. Uh, she, along with a mysterious man lies dead and when we report back you know we uh it, it's interesting because vice and near will have these little conversations like and it, it it's a very humanizing thing throughout the whole game the two of you have these like little talks and you know vice is like oh those those poor kids like what are we gonna tell them Near's like i don't know and he's like well you gotta tell them something like you gotta do you gotta do something mm-hmm. it's very nice yeah. but uh you can choose to lie and say that you know the mom's missing or say that she's dead Either way, the younger brother, you know, storms off and in an amazing display of like insane matureness, the older brother says, you know, I know that she was having an affair. I know that she's probably dead. If she was happy at the very end of her life, even though she abandoned us, if she was happy, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, geez, man, good for you (laughs) because I don't know that I'm that mature. Yeah. Very well adjusted for the situation they find themselves in. It's well adjusted and it's one of those bits of world building that's like, it's really, it's a sad story. It's really sad. A mother abandoning her kids because like their dad died and now she's distraught. Mm -hmm. She's like, I don't, it's, it's very sad. Yeah. But after this and presumably getting your weapons upgraded, you're back to the airy once again. You uh, do find new shades. Some have magic fields now. You take them down. And that ugly shade from before comes back into the center of the village. And this is turning into one of our biggest fights. Um, That shade is destroying those huts on the cliffside that uh, Dave had mentioned before. Uh, Even though as we're fighting this thing and trying to protect the village, we hear the villagers cursing Kaine, calling her a filthy half-breed. We try to stick up for her, and she's like, shut the fuck up. Mm -hmm. Um this is also, I think this is also where she starts saying things like, I'll tear out your goddamn eye. I'll tear out your goddamn eyes and piss in the sockets. Yeah. Um, she, she saves her most colorful stuff for this particular shade, which you'll find out why. But yeah. Diegetic man comes back. The, the fight is pretty straightforward, uh, but it is very cool. It's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a certain point, the beast sort of shoots out this fog that hypnotizes Kaine. And it speaks to her as if it's her grandmother, you know, saying like, oh, Kaine, like, I've been so worried about you. And uh, Kaine is under the spell until the shade says, you should just die. Like, like, just give up. Like, you're a freak. Just give up. Mm -hmm. At which point Kaine kind of snaps out of it (laughs) and uh, says this. You've been lonely for so, so long. So much pain. So much despair. Why go on living anymore? Kaine? Is that it? Hmm? Are you finished yet? Don't speak to your grandma like 
you're going to stop talking now. And then I'm going to slowly walk over to you, cram my hand inside your goddamn bitch-ass chest, and pull out your fucking heart! <laughs> Just more colorful language from Kaina. It's great. It's really cool. Uh, yep. But that brings us to the end of this this boss fight. We kind of skewer it onto a pole, uh, but we have to save Kaine now, um, which happens a lot in this game. Yep. It's very weird how often the better fighter is getting knocked out and we have to save her. And not not like um, she loses a fight. It There's a couple times where like she dies because of just a bad deflection or something like that like an un- an unlucky death I'll, I'll say that yeah yeah she's always always happening to her uh this also starts the b- many back and forths between vice and kaine which is very funny always funny uh, he always calls her a hussy throughout the entire game <laughs> which is a very funny yeah. word to me <laughs> yeah he's calling her a hussy she's just constantly like cram it book or like i'm gonna toss you in the fireplace book yeah um it, in the Japanese version, I think I I don't have the translation, and I don't know I don't know offhand how to precisely say this, but um, Vice calls her underpants lady like throughout the whole thing. <laughs> um, the localization team must have had a blast doing this. Yeah, I'm sure. Ah, so cool. But um, Kaine says, you know, I know a king in this nearby desert town of Facade. He's also got the Black Scrawl. They've got money, so like they might have a cure. So let's go. Yeah. And Kaine decides to come with us. And you're, you're picking up sealed verses as you go. You get one in the junk heap um, after you beat the boss uh, before you find the dead mom. I think you get one here after killing the, the big shade. So we're on our way with that quest too. The, the sealed yes. verses are just Thank a you. new type of magic. That's all you get. They are. Yes. Um, and you would be forgiven for thinking they're a MacGuffin your first time around because they kind of are. (laughs) Facade is a really cool city. It's a desert city and there's like sand rivers, which is kind of cool. All of the villagers hide their faces in these really elaborate masks and they speak a language that's, it it almost sounds like Japanese, but it's very clearly not. Okay. It's a fake language. Yeah. I, I I had read this as like this is this is more of an attempt than maybe another language of like what if Japanese what what will Japanese sound like ten thousand years in the future? Like that kind of a thing. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Which this is what is this twelve one it's one thousand something years in the future. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but it's it's interesting because again now we're you know thinking back if perspective is a theme in this we've got a new perspective now because this city not only do, do they use their own language they have their own culture that is based entirely upon rules mm-hmm. um and actually i i did some reading yoko taro considers this to be like a parody of modern japan um modern japan is very very fixated, maybe not so much modern Japan, but like Japan is fixated on social rules and, you know, you, you can't do this and you you can't say that, you know, saying no is very impolite mm-hmm. or things like that. 
Um, so he kind of made this uh, and it's played for comedy a lot because they'll be like, oh, we eventually we we have to save somebody. And they're like, well, he's inside the temple and rule 8,512 says we can't go in there. And somebody else will say, but rule 2,102 says we can't not have a prince here. So and they just, it's very it's it, it's almost played a shtick. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty funny. I like it. I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, so we can't get to the King's Manor here, obviously, um, because we are outsiders. Why, why would we? We can't even speak the language. But uh, this girl trips and falls. She spills her groceries, and we, uh, we help her up. Um, she can kind of communicate through gestures, and I guess she understands English or Japanese uh, because she can communicate with us. Vice is able to translate her sign language somehow, uh, so he, this is where we learn about the rules and everything. But after uh, this girl, whose name is Fira, gives us a tour, we learn that uh, Kaine actually saved her from wolves a little while ago, uh, which is why the villagers look very kindly upon Kaine, because she, uh, she saved Fira. I think this is the only one where Kaine will actually go in with you. She usually waits outside, like your village, your home village. Kaine won't go inside. Um, but she, she won't go far into facade, but she'll come in. She'll hang out by the entrance. So maybe that's why. I think so. I think so. We learn pretty quickly that the king that had the black scrawl has died. Um, so now the prince is in charge now, but he's missing. Uh, he's gone off to this temple that they can't enter because of the rules. Uh, so, you know, Kaine says, well, we're outsiders. The rules don't apply to us. So we obviously we're going to go look for him. Uh, this temple becomes like a dungeon and it it does something that I personally think is really cool, but I think other people don't like it. Uh, in the dungeon, you go through different rooms and each room you have to clear by getting through it without doing certain actions as they are laid out to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another way of saying that, each room has a set of rules, and you've got to follow them. Yeah, I I like this a lot too. I I thought that... You did? I thought I would have have sworn that you would have not liked this. No, I thought it was cool because, you know, at this point, we're what? We're uh, around eight hours into the game, something like that. This shakes up the gameplay in the slightest bit. And there are a couple of rooms that were like more like puzzles than, you know, combat rooms. Some of them are combat rooms and they just say no magic in this room or like no dodging. But then some of them are puzzles to try and navigate through without getting hit. And I did have fun with those. There were a couple that were super annoying to me. Um, I think there's one where you can't run. Yeah, that one Um, sucked. I had to train myself to not, you know, push far enough on the stick. Oh, you did it the hard way. I just hold, held down block. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. If you, <laughs> I actually think what I did was I held down block and I walked backwards because I convinced myself that was how I had to do it. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It, it changes it up a little bit, uh, though. I, I like it quite a bit. I, I, I hate to keep rushing through things, but for the sake of time, uh, I'm going to push through the rest of this temple. Uh, we do find the prince in there after fighting a little boss. The boss fight is kind of cool. It's nothing super special. Uh, there is a little Legend of Zelda reference in here that I like quite a bit. It's very cute. Uh, but we do find the prince. 
we save him. He comes back. He has this quote that I think is really cool. Uh, he says uh, he says this to the royal guard once he gets back. He says, rules do not exist to bind you. They exist so you may know your freedoms. What do you think about that? It seemed a bit cheesy at the moment. I didn't, I don't know, I didn't really take it to heart that much. It's. It seemed like the kind of thing for someone who's never gotten in trouble to say, I think. Um, like the the teacher's pet would say something like that. But I didn't think that hard about it, honestly. Just kind of a, oh, the, the it was like, he says that and I was like, oh, the prince is kind of cool. That's basically what I took from it. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's some truth in it. I agree with you, though. It it has the cadence, uh, whether intentional or not, of somebody that has never really been prosecuted by the rules. I was going to say, if you, if you just follow the law, you'll never never have a problem, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. That, which is clearly not what they're going for, but I mean, right. we got a clown on it, yeah. right? Yep, a little bit. So, uh, speaking of clowning on it, this, this is maybe... I, I think the worst writing in the game. Um, once you save the prince, you know, they're, the society says, like, oh, we are in your debt. You know, like, yeah, just tell us what you want. We'll do it. And throughout up to now, the whole thing has been about perspective and learning that different cultures have different perspectives and that's okay. And, you know, you just got to – you can't come in and change their rules. You have to follow their rules. It's a sign of respect and mm-hmm. different perspectives. And what does Nier do? <laughs> Nier says, well, well, how about this? Why don't uh, – since we're, you're indebted to us, make a rule zero – which gives everybody voting power. He comes in and just changes their whole culture. I was going to say, yeah. My one genie wish is I'm going to turn all of your lives upside down. Then I'm going to leave. I'm going to come back years later. <laughs> this, like, man, I, I know this probably wasn't on their minds, but like, because they're Japanese citizens. But as an American, the first thing I thought of here was like, well, this is just a white guy coming into a new place and saying, here's democracy. Uh huh. You know? Yep. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, okay, that's, you know, we'll, we'll see how that works. It's uh, it's so silly. Um, but everybody's happy with you. They say, yes, uh, we never see any consequence of that, but they're friends now. Everybody's happy with you now, mm-hmm. but... They'll let you ride on the, uh, the river of sand on the raft that takes fucking forever to yes, ride across the, the unskippable. city. Yes, unskippable. <laughs> Yeah, one one and done on that. Once was cool, but no more. When you go back and check on Yona, she's okay. But you have a dream, interestingly. You you have a dream of a silver-haired boy, uh, much like yourself, speaking. All you can make out are the words dream, sealed verse, and forest of myth. What's weird is that Yona has the same dream. What's even weirder is you go to see Popola the next day. And she receives a letter from the Forest of Myth. And it's written, it's like something out of a creepypasta. Like it starts out as a normal letter. <laughs> yeah. And then the word dream just starts appearing everywhere. And then at the end, like the last paragraph is just the word dream over and over again. So obviously this is a problem. So we have to go check on that and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. This And I'm, I'm very curious to see how you felt about this next section. Well, so like the next section um, is a, a text adventure section and you you had just talked about like the writing in the previous section as being 
antithetical to a theme or just kind of strange in general. Uh, but I thought that writing in these text adventure sections is excellent. Like, loved reading it. And the music plays too, and the music picks up during different sections of the text adventure. So if you're going through something with, um, you know, a scene where they're describing some action or something like that, the music will pick up to reflect that. And I, I really, really enjoyed this and the other text adventure sections too. Yeah, it's, they're really, they're really well written more so than I was expecting Yeah, for a game. Because if a standard character action game tried to do something like this, I wouldn't have high hopes, but the writing here is actually quite good. Yeah. And it's it's also kind of cheeky too, because like at first your text box gets a little bigger and then a little bigger, and the narrator will say things like, Oh, Vice sighed heavily, and Vice will pipe up and say, I did no such thing. <laughs> and it's 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 very cute. Um but yeah, this this whole section is a text adventure, a mini visual novel, and you uh the the bosses, quote unquote, are just sort of like Disco Elysium, like little uh, word tree puzzles. Mm-hmm. You just got to solve them to get out. Um, the whole story of this area is a little weird. Um, the village here has fallen under a curse where they fall asleep and they can't wake up. And what causes them to fall asleep are these contagious words. It's it's a little... it's it's strange it, um, it was cool flavor i thought but ultimately meaningless for the greater story but while i was here i was like that's pretty cool yeah it is pretty cool um you can also go into you have to wake up the village chief for sure that's the main text adventure you can also go into the other villagers dreams which honestly as far as side quests go you're not doing a lot of playing but I, they're kind of my favorite side quests. Yeah, it was it was one where like um, I did one and I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to do the other ones because I want to see the next text adventure thing. I want to see what they're talking about. Uh, the, the main thing of note to take, take home here is that uh, the dream version of the village chief mentions that he's seen you before, you and Vice, but it wasn't you. Um, and that's not something we understand right now but it becomes a little clearer as we go forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, We get a sealed verse here, and this is the first time that Vice kind of wonders out loud. He's like, this feels too easy. Like, these verses are supposed to cure the Black Scrawl. We're getting them at such a quick rate. It feels like somebody wants us to do this. And, of course, Nier says, you know, don't worry about it, bud. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty much what he says. Yeah, we're on the the quest. Why are we going to question the next quest? Uh, so, of course, check on Yona again. We've got her. She's sick. This is where we learn that Yona has a pen pal. Uh, it's played for a little bit for comedy because it's a boy. And, you know, brother near or father near, you're kind of like, oh, she she's having a boyfriend now. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's fine. It's kind of funny. Um, but she says that her pen pal is really sick and needs help. So we go. We learn that he's living in a mansion that's kind of nearby.
this mansion area, this is your new area. It's kind of... Now, I've never played Resident Evil. Or Silent Hill, actually. But I kind of get a Resident Evil vibe from this house. Yeah. There's a bit of a, a survival horror vibe from it. It's it's definitely played up to be a bit spooky. And you're doing survival horror things. You're going around looking for keys to open up the next door. Doing a little bit of combat. Seeing some weird stuff as you go. I definitely got that vibe, too. And in the mansion, too, your camera kind of like... Uh, it's not tank controls, but it the camera angle resembles like the old school tank controls mm-hmm. with Resident Evil. Yeah. Like it's very like in a corner then in another corner. I like how uh, I like how when you get close to the mountain or not the the mountain the mansion too like you said the color palette goes gray but the music stops too. And it's yeah. it's very creepy. Uh, and I was like cuz I saw this going back and forth to seafront and I saw this mansion and I know that in a near game if I see something that's been made like this I'm going to go inside at some point. So I was waiting to see what the deal was with the mansion, and it didn't disappoint. This is um, one of my favorite parts of the the first, you know, pre-time skip um, sections. So when you get to the mansion, you find a butler, and he says, you know, welcome, you're expected. Inside, uh, he he tells you to wait, but then Kaine goes wandering off, so we go wandering off to find her. We end up finding this kid. He uh, His name is Emil. He's sitting in a piano. He's wearing a blindfold. Uh, so, you know, we, we assume that he's blind. He tells you pretty quickly, though, that he's wearing it because everything he looks at turns to stone. Uh, he says that, you know, he's the master of the manor, and he apologizes uh, because he doesn't know what you're talking about when you ask if you sent him or if he sent Yona the letters. He, he's like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, the butler, turns out, was the one sending... <laughs> the uh the letters uh the butler moves like a robot which is uh i don't remember if they ever explain this actually i don't i don't know i wonder if it would be in those um those files that you can read it might be um but the butler says you know it was me actually you know we we have the cure for emil's petrification it's somewhere in here but there are shades in the manor we can't fight the shades like we need your help so I wrote to you, but Yona actually intercepted it. She misinterpreted the whole situation. Uh, but you're here now, mm-hmm. so please help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it kind of funny. But uh, so we, uh, Vice doesn't want to do this at all, but uh, we agree to help because why not? It's going to make Yona happy. It's going to make Emil happy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that they needed our help because Emil kind of fights with you. Uh, and he can one-shot enemies by just looking at them. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Like, they turn to stone and then they crumble. Yeah. But this is, I don't know if this is a good time to just talk about Emil, uh, because Emil is my favorite character in this game. He's Yeah, please, let's let's talk he, about him. He's, oh man, he's, he's just the sweetest little kid. He's the best. And he's so sincere with everything that he says. He gives a couple of rousing speeches in the game, and there's, you know, there's never any sense that it's not coming from like the depths of his heart when he says something and he's just so sweet and it, it's so just sad what happens with him. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's got a very tragic story and for as kind hearted as he is it, you know, that's, 
if you're going to make something tragic happen to somebody and you want to make it hit hard, mm-hmm. make them a, make them a good boy. Yeah. Emil's the best. I, I, this is another thing. He shows up in your automata in a very minor role. And this is something that people who played the original would be like ecstatic to see him, but I didn't first. So did you get that reaction when you played? When I played automata? Yeah. Kinda, I so I missed the quest with him okay. in Automata. So all I ever saw was him riding around in the cart. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah, I know, dude. I know. I I missed the big side quest with him, but uh, I'm due for a replay, mm-hmm. so it's fine. We do end up getting deep into the library. Uh, we start looking through all the books to find the cure, but one of them comes to life, and it's red. Uh, this is Grimoire Rubrum. The first thing that I was thinking here on my replay was I, I was wondering if there was an alchemical connection, right? So the, the alchemy process has uh, red, black, and white, uh, rubido, nigredo, and albedo mm-hmm. to sort of go through that process. You know, uh, what uh, I, I don't know exactly, but like white is the state of purity and you have to go through red and black to get there. I was wondering if there was going to be a connection. I think it's just a coincidence. I don't think there's a connection. Yeah. Uh, if somebody out there is listening and has a better read on this than me, let me know mm-hmm. because I, I think it's wildly interesting, but I think it's just a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm trying to think of anything, you know, even re- dealing with the color gold and nothing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if if anything, maybe a misdirect because of what we learn pretty soon. But who's to say? We we do defeat Rubrum, Grimoire Rubrum, and uh, afterwards, Kaine has like a a little aside with Emil, and she says, you know, you should never be ashamed of your eyes, uh, and she says they're not a sin, and she shows him her arm, and you know he can't see, but he's like f- feeling her her arm, and he's like, oh my god, you're a shade, uh, and she whispers something to him. Uh, we can't hear it, but it it very clearly upsets him. Uh, <laughs> and it's very heartfelt. It's very sincere. And then Nier comes in and is like, all right, guys, let's go. <laughs> this, um, <laughs> the, the dynamic between Kaine and Emil is so great throughout the game too. Kaine, yes. Kaine is such a, she's so standoffish with everybody except for Emil. She loves Emil. And Emil is such a sincere and amazing little kid that he loves her too. And the way that they interact, like I said, the the way that they support each other throughout the story is so good. Excellent. 100% agree. It's, it's very sweet. Um, this, and this, this sort of ends the, uh, character acquisition. This is our new party, Mm -hmm. our four main party members, um, and I, I know we've talked about it before, but I really can't stress enough how good the dynamic between them all is. Yeah. It's very good. And it gets even better. It can't get better for long, though, because this is a Yoko Taro joint. <laughs> Yona's getting worse, like rapidly worse. Uh, so we have to go get medicine supplies. But as we're running out of town, we run into a meal. He's run all the way uh, from his mansion to here. He collapses immediately upon making it to the village. We take him back to Popola's and we, he's like, you know, shades are coming. I can sense it. You don't have any time. You got to go. And immediately, like right away, uh, shades just start swarming the village. Um, th- this is your big point of no return 
for uh, the second getting into the second half of the story. Mm-hmm. So uh, we tell Popola and Devola to herd as many people into the library because we are going to go fight some shades. And fight them we do because we get this enormous shade that comes in through. And this is really the first boss fight uh, of this size in the game. And I don't know, I, I just thought it was really satisfying. Yeah, it was cool. And video games do this a lot of time. Like they they make your home village or your safe place into an arena for something that's not safe anymore or a world state change or something like that. So having like the attack on the village was great. This, this uh, like the one we fought with Kaine is big, much bigger than us, of course. This one's like a kaiju. Like it's it's like Godzilla mm-hmm. coming in. It's huge, and so it, it really felt um, like an epic uh, type of thing. Like a, you know, this is a. I was playing this thinking, I know that this is a Yoko Taro game. How are we going to win this? Like it's it's not an unreasonable um, prediction to think we're going to lose this fight, uh, just because how how could we win? It's so big. The fight with this shade is more or less pretty standard. We fight it off as, uh, you know, more shades come, but we're really focused on the big guy. And eventually it starts walking towards the library. So we're thinking, you know, Yona's in there, the villagers are in there. We cannot let it get there. And we barely are able to strike it down uh, with Kaine's help before it gets to the library. But we hear screams coming from inside. Uh, this next part is really, really cool, and a lot happens. Um, so you fight off some shades with the Mio and Kaine inside of the library, and eventually the giant monster from outside comes in, but it's kind of changed into like a like a worm. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't clear on if this was the same one or if it was just a new one, but yeah, regard, it doesn't really matter. But yeah, now it's in the library. Yeah, we, we, we got to get it out of there. So we beat it down, and we're able to trap it in the basement, which is Kaine's suggestion. So we drive it into there, and she's holding the door shut, and, like, it's trying to get out. But right as we go to give her the key to lock it, a black spear comes from under the floor, stabbing us right through the shoulder. And in comes this half-shade, half-human thing that looks kind of like us. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell because it's you know, anime, but <laughs> kind of, <laughs> it kind of looks like us, but with wings and it's clearly a shade. Other shades appear out of blood, no less, uh, and like bow to it. They worship this thing. Yeah. The important thing though, is that this, uh, shade human thing has a grimoire, grimoire noir and Yona. He's got Yona. Yeah. I thought this was going to be the end of the game. I thought this was going to be the final boss of the game. Legit. Yeah. It, it's doing the really cool thing. Um, it's kind of doing the Final Fantasy VI thing, where uh, the halfway point of the game is the characters lose. Yep. I got Even during the boss fight, I kind of started to get the feeling that, like, I don't think I can beat this thing. Like, this thing feels like it has the upper hand. Yeah. And, and seeing this new shadow man 
have not only does he have Yona, but he has his own grimoire, mm-hmm. and the shades seem to worship him. It's not to mention Nier is crippled, basically. It doesn't look good. Yeah. Like it, it is it is tough. But uh the grimoire, Grimoire Noir, opens up and emits this insane blast, uh, which we get taken to this semi-conscious realm with vice and noir. And this this is wild. This is wild here. Noir explains that, you know, they're actually one. And he's like, have you forgotten the plan? Uh, he says, I am Grimoire Noir. I am you. Do you not remember Grimoire Vice? We two serve a higher purpose. And of course, Vice says, you know, no, like, I'm not you. I'm Who are you? I'm not you. Mm-hmm. And Noir continues saying that they serve the Shadow Lord and they need to proceed towards the ultimate goal of creating a new paradise. I think he says, white and black shall fuse to one and set free shades to the world. And at this point... This is an evil plan, right? Like in your head, this is an evil plan. Yeah. This is a, we are going to make a world where uh, the demons can rule and live in, live in whatever, however demons want to live, you know? This is the evil version of the world they're trying to bring about. So we think. Yeah. And and knowing that, you know, Vice has been our guy this whole time, our key to finding the verses and saving Yona. Yeah. And now suddenly he seems to be part of the enemy. Like, what? Yeah. I think I had I think I had noted that too, that at this point in the game, you're like, oh, you know, because Vice is you always got the feeling that like you made a partnership with vice to, to help. And like you accepted his help, but you also got the feeling like vice is ancient. He's been here forever. And the, Mm -hmm. uh, there's songs written about him and stuff. So you don't really know what his motives are here. He's just kind of like you accept my power and then you go and he's helpful and he helps you use magic and all of that. But then you, you get to this part and you're like, Oh, have I am I being used right now like that kind of thing as well? Our one saving grace is that Vice is denying all this. He seems genuinely confused. Yeah. Um, Noir explains that the Shadow Lord was the one who set up the chance encounter with Nier to begin with, and ultimately our quest to gather the sealed verses. So this is all part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, we've supposedly we've been playing right into the Shadow Lord's hands. Vice is losing it at this point, but. This is where we begin to hear Emil and Kaine calling out for him. You know, Emil, like we can hear Emil shouting like, you know, I won't forget you. Like, you're such a good friend and (laughs) so sad and I'll miss you so much. And then you hear Kaine. She's like, you fucking piece of shit, asshole. Get your fucking head out of here. Yeah. (laughs) It's and it's funny because like, you know, when they're saying that stuff, Vice is like, wow, what do what do I hear? And like Kaine calls him a bitch, and Vice is like, "What, bitch?" <laughs> I don't. I thought it was very funny when he snaps out of it. He was like, "I don't think I've ever been called a little bitch before." <laughs> For the last time, my name is Grimoire Vice, and it is not to be abbreviated. V- Vice, Vice. Good to see you, Kaine. Although I don't think anyone has ever accused me of being a little bitch before. 
It's very good. Yeah. He, uh, he does snap out of it. He gives the sort of obligatory, I have my friends and that's all I need. JRPG. And you fight the Shadow yeah. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It is. Hey, man, he set out to do the theme of friendship. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I guess one thing to note here uh, that I didn't notice until my second playthrough is when we're fighting the Shadow Lord, the Song of the Ancients is playing. Now, this this is deliberately placed every single time. There is a um, there is a thought in theater called mise en place that is uh, basically I'm not theater people. Please don't correct me, but um, or or do just be nice about it. But <laughs> the gist of it is is that everything like in a scene is placed intentionally. Uh huh. You know, it, it's kind of an extension of Chekhov's gun. I think they're doing that here with with the song the Song of the Ancients. And, you know, when we learn what's going on, I think there's a, an argument for this, but I we can't talk about it right now. Right. But it is important. Like, this is playing now for a reason. Yeah. As far as the fight goes, fighting Grimoire Noir, it's just a stronger version of Grimoire Rubrum. That's really, that's really it. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, you might be onto something with the um, the Song of the Ancients and the placement I, I would have to like go back and probably not play the game again, but like if there's a handy list out there of every time the the song is used, then you know there might be a uh, pattern to it for sure. Well, outside of the village, it's only used in one other spot at the very end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. And that is intentional. Yes. Oh man, it's so good. We are obviously able to hold our own against Noir even though we're practically crippled. Noir uses one last attack, though, shooting a black lance towards Vice, and Nier jumps in front of it, getting pierced now through the abdomen. So at this point, my first playthrough, I was like, okay, Nier is dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, he can't, like, he's he's done. And we're going to play as um, uh, play as Kaine for the rest of the game, or something like that. I, I honestly thought that was going to be the case. Mm-hmm. I really did. Noir and Shadow Lord leave with Yona. They're stealing Yona, but before they leave, Noir says, you'll understand in time. Everything returns to us. We don't know at this point what that means. Right. All we know right now is, uh, well, Kaine even says it. She says, we've lost. Yeah. Have we gotten, has Kaine revealed her, like, her her ultimate desire to this point in the game, to your knowledge? That, like, the thing that she wants the most is to die? I don't think so. Okay. You can cut that out if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also don't remember that being her ultimate desire, though. Uh, she, she, I mean, she says that's all she wants several times, like, especially toward the end. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I get you. To I remember. We'll get to that. <laughs> Speaking of Kaine, though, she asks Emil... She's still, she's still like this whole time she's been holding this door closed, right? Like she can't do that much longer. Um, even she has her limits and she says, Emil, you need to use your eyes to petrify me in front of this door. It will seal the monster below and it will keep everybody safe. Mm-hmm. You think Yoko Taro <laughs> likes Star Wars? <laughs> it, yeah, it, it kind of does look a lot like Han in the Carbonite. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, near, near, yeah. Um, Emil protests. You know, he doesn't want to do this, but eventually that's exactly what he does. Um, he's like, 
practically crying the whole time. Kaine gets petrified, near collapses. Uh, he says he'll come back for Kaine and Yona, uh, but he collapses like he's bleeding out. Mm-hmm. And that's it. <laughs> that's the last we see before the time jump. Right. Like by all accounts, we have lost. Like this is this is the bottom. Like if if this if this story is an arc. You know, you need to have like your rising action, your climax, your falling action, and you're going to have little dips in between, right? Mm-hmm. This point is the lowest. This is the hole. Yeah. This is bleak, man. Like your main character is practically dead. Yeah. Your main character is uh, basically dead. One of your characters is petrified. Uh, to this point, we don't know if we'll ever be able to unpetrify her. And uh, your other character, um, Vice, might be a traitor. Just because he doesn't remember it doesn't mean he's not a traitor. And the one person we've been trying to protect has been kidnapped. Right, exactly. So the the low point in this story goes way lower than a lot of other stories do, which is why the um, the the FF six comparison is is pretty apt. Uh, but this this is great. This is a great ending. You uh, <laughs> you're not really sure how you're going to get out of this. You know. Oh, 100%. Um, especially because it fades to black. Yeah. So, you know, for the world is, I mean, the world is over. Our world is over mm-hmm. as far as we know it. Um, I also want to say the voice acting here is really, really good. Mm-hmm. The voice acting throughout the game is really, I, I think it's pretty good. But especially in dramatic moments, I really thought all the voice actors were great. Um especially Kaine Emil though, like again, dramatic moments, speeches with Emil. Fantastic. Love that kid. Yeah. And, and this talk about dramatic points, dramatic endings. This is uh this is where we're calling the episode for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it went a little bit longer than I was anticipating, but so, so it goes anytime Dave is on the show, to be honest, I but I don't of, consider that a things con to say. at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's one thing, you know, I like to go through the story beat by beat, but I also don't like to sacrifice that conversation that comes with a more generalized approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I like both. I want my cake and I want to eat it too. And I want a podcast like my God given right as an American. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so I don't personally mind the long episodes. No, you know me, man. I don't mind it either. To two and a half hours we're at right now, this is a standard Tales from the Backlog episode. <laughs> but... This is where we are calling it for today. We are ending on a profoundly sad note, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it gets better next time. The next time we come back with this, we are going to be covering the rest of the story. That is to say ending A and going through endings B through E. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not as much content as you're thinking, I promise. Right. Yep. Um, If you're listening to this in real time, uh, the next episode, part two, and the final episode, part two, will be out in a month's time. Um, I didn't initially want to have these separated so much, but um, the only way for us to do what we're doing right now is to bisect the ongoing games and sort of space them out that way. It's the only way it would make sense with our schedules, with Ben's schedules, with my schedule, Dave's schedule, everybody's schedule. Um, So we hope that's okay. Uh, podcasts live forever, basically. So, if you're, you know, if you're listening to this in the future, ignore. Doesn't matter to you. <laughs> um, but for those that are listening day of, I just wanted to let you know. 
Come back in a month. We'll be ready to tackle part two. In the meantime, we've got Final Fantasy VI coming up. We just did our twist episode. February, we'll also have more Final Fantasy VI content. In the meantime, if you want more near content, you can check out Tales from the Backlog, near Automata. They just did an episode over there uh, somewhat recently, right? Yeah, it was in, um, I want to say November, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I listened to the whole thing. It's very good. If you want more Tales from the Backlog content as well, you know where to find that. Dave mentioned it earlier, but just to reiterate, he is on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, TFTBLpod, I believe. On Twitter, yeah, and on Instagram is just Tales from the Backlog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same cover art for both, though. You'll, you'll know who it is when you see mm-hmm. it. If you want more of us, I mentioned at the beginning that I would go into more detail here, but we do have an Instagram and a Twitter. Uh, If you search Pixel Project Radio, you'll find us. We have a Discord server. Uh, Really love when new folks join the Discord. It's always great to have more community members. You'll find links to that on our social media as well as in the episode notes for this episode. So give that a look, see. We also have a Patreon. We have a Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash pixelprojectradio. Uh, If you are so inclined, uh, Ben and I, uh, I can speak for Ben on this, uh, but the two of us really value supporting independent and smaller artists. And podcasting, even though, I mean, it seems like everybody has one, podcasting is an art form, right? And uh, we both support different folks on Patreon, uh, and some folks have been kind enough to support us back as well. Uh, We've got plenty of different tiers, as low as two bucks a month, Everything comes with little bonuses. Uh, It's never expected, but it's always appreciated. So that's Pixel Project Radio. Nope, that's patreon.com slash pixelprojectradio. You can check that out. That is all of the plugging that I have to do. I want to say thank you once again to Dave, host of Tales from the Backlog and a Top 3 podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me on this monumental episode on one of my favorite games, of all time that is going to be a combined total of like six hours <laughs> yeah but it's it's so good I, I love it so much and i'm really happy to have somebody that uh not only likes the game but is willing to talk in depth about it on the show yeah man of course i'm um anytime you invite me on to talk about a game i'm game for it but especially this game because i know you enjoyed it so much i know you have a lot of things you want to talk about and so i can't wait to dig in in part two because that's where like i feel like we teased a bunch of like i got a theory you're gonna have to wait until like hour two of part two before you can hear it i can't wait to get those theories out man but thank you once again for inviting me on yes for all of you that grew up in the 90s and early 2000s just like back when you would watch dragon ball z (laughs) and you had to wait a full week to realize that oh goku's just gonna do power-ups for 10 minutes and then beat Frieza in yeah. like five. No, I'm just kidding. We, we could do a little, <laughs> Frieza arc we could do really a little like, is Grimoire Vice a traitor? Will Kaine get unpetrified? Find out <laughs> next time on Pixel Project Radio. <laughs> no notes. I don't have anything more to add to that. See you all next time. <laughs>